This is the April 2023 edition of EM Reviews and Perspectives. This is Swami here with Jan Schoenberger. Jan, how's it going? Hey, Swami. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Can't really complain. April, great month. It is a great month. And welcome back, everybody. Here we are in spring. It's a beautiful month. Summer is just around the corner. Things are starting to warm up. Love it. I hope everyone's getting outside, getting a little exercise. And uh, I hope everyone's garden's growing, Jan. But none of this is relevant. <laughs> the topic we have for the case, not even a little bit relevant. So let's get into the case. You've got a great case for us to dive into. The case. So Swami, I have a 50-year-old male who is coming in by ambulance, of course. And the chief complaint we get over the radio is that his legs are very weak. His vitals sound pretty good. He's a little tachycardic, 105. His blood pressure is okay. Normal O2 sat. There's been no trauma. They're coming from a hotel in downtown L.A., and so, you know, it sounds like a pretty stable guy, but we're starting to talk about what could be going on. Swami, what are what are your thoughts about a differential diagnosis for leg weakness? I'd like to kind of just crystallize a couple of things in my mind that I have to think about. So anytime you hear weakness, everyone's going to kind of be thinking, is this a stroke? Do I have to go down that stroke pathway? So it's in my head, but if both legs are weak, it makes it pretty unlikely that we're dealing with a brain cause of that weakness. So this seems a little bit more peripheral. But, you know, there's things like maybe Guillain-Barre, that Miller-Fisher variant where they start in the legs and then come up. Spinal epidural abscess, spinal mass, central cord, although that's usually more upper than lower. So I kind of want to know, was there any trauma associated with this? Obviously, you're not going to get a ton of information from EMS and route. But, you know, a question like, has this happened before to the patient can be really helpful. So hypokalemic periodic paralysis, that's kind of on my list. And the other one that I think you're going to get more history around it that would lead you there is compartment syndrome. And, you know, typically we see a unilateral compartment syndrome, but you and I have both seen the bilateral compartment syndrome, especially in patients who maybe were using something that caused them to pass out for long periods of time. So that's kind of in the back of my mind too, although you would hope that there'd be some pain associated with that as well. So I guess that's the list of things that are in my initial differential before I see the patient. I think those are good. We talked about those, you know, and, and when we say the legs are weak, I agree there's like this bilateral leg component that makes you think of some unusual things and start thinking about cords. So, all right. So the guy comes in, he rolls in, he's sitting up on the gurney. He looks okay. You know, you introduce yourself and he responds and you notice immediately that his voice is also very weak. It's kind of soft. You're sort of leaning in a little bit to hear him. He's here in LA on business. He's from the Bay Area, actually. And he says, you know, I woke up in the middle of the night and I really couldn't move my legs. And so I had to crawl to my phone to call for help. It was across the room. It took him two hours to crawl to his cell phone uh, on the other side of the room. And he also, though, now he's telling you that he also has weakness in his upper extremities. As you're starting to do some initial exam, you realize that the arms are as weak as the legs. And it just wasn't as profound for him as the legs, since that is what prevented him from getting to the phone. So first of all, you always charge your phone next to the bed. Right. I mean, Everybody knows that. Take home but... number one. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what they do in the Bay Area, Jen, but you know, over here on the East Coast, that's what we do with our phones. But that's neither here nor there. The upper and lower extremity weakness, again, it really pushes me away from stroke. So my guess is if this patient came into my emergency department, they would have already activated a stroke code. And now I'm going to stop that stroke code because I don't think we should be going down that route. That Miller-Fisher variant of Guillain-Barre is definitely on the list because maybe initially it was just the legs, but now it's the legs and the arms. So I'm still thinking about that. And I kind of want to know from him, have you been sick recently? Has anything kind of led up to this event? But I guess the other things that would still be in my head, I really haven't eliminated much because you could still have that spinal epidural abscess. You could still have a spinal mass. 
Trauma seems unlikely unless, again, this guy had a fall that he's not telling us about or some kind of occult trauma that we don't know about. And then that hypokalemic periodic paralysis is on there too, because that does kind of cause a whole body weakness as opposed to just one part or the other. I think that's all right. And, you know, when you see this sort of generalized weakness, everything from the voice to the arms, the legs, you know, I also started thinking about metabolic things or things like profound anemia, you know, other things that can cause sort of generalized weakness. Those were all also in my mind. And so we start to examine him and it does confirm his findings. You know, he has basically what I would describe as three out of five strength throughout, meaning that he could move his extremities against gravity, but you can tell it's very weak. If he were to apply any resistance, it would just go straight down. It's a huge effort for him to try to lift a leg or lift an arm. And after he does it, he looks exhausted. His sensation is actually intact throughout and the legs and the arms really seem to be equal. It's not really one versus the other. It's even present when he tries to lift his head, but his mental status is completely intact and his exam is otherwise normal. And yes, you asked a very important question about has this happened to him before? And it has happened to him before mm. a few months ago. Now we have to think about something that could happen multiple times. So that hypokalemic periodic paralysis is up there. Spinal epidural abscess and a mass are kind of sinking down my list of things. I guess one of the things, Jan, that we didn't really talk about, his voice was weak. We should have really assessed his airway and said, is this patient adequately maintaining that airway and is he adequately breathing? Or is this a patient where I actually have to consider, do I need an airway intervention? But it sounds like he's answering all your questions. His oxygen saturation is good. Maybe an end tidal CO2 would help a little bit just to make sure he's ventilating well. So that's something that I can do at the bedside to kind of assure myself that I don't have to go down that route. And then I guess you mentioned the metabolic stuff. So I guess I want some electrolytes and an ECG. Those are some quick bedside things that might give me the answer and might kind of pair with that idea of him having had this before and guide us down a pathway. I think that's just spot on. So we were thinking the same thing. EKG is probably the fastest thing to get. And then we're kind of cooking the electrolytes. We happen to have point of care electrolytes, which is really helpful. Sometimes you don't have those. Maybe the next fastest thing might be a VBG for you. Whatever it is, we were pretty curious about his electrolytes. And so the EKG is cooking. The EKG looks like eh, there might be some little clues here. And the iStat, our point of care lights come back and the K is 2.2. So it mm. is low. And then he starts to tell you about this episode that happened a couple months ago. He was actually admitted to a hospital. He had a big workup. It sounded like he had an LP and an MRI, but his potassium was low. He says he thought it was about 1.9, and he was ultimately diagnosed with thyrotoxicosis, and he's taking methimazole. And so I'm wondering if you've seen that combination before, Swami. I mean, I know about the combination, Jan. Have I seen that combination? No, but I've, I've read about it, that thyrotoxicosis can cause this severe hypokalemia and I think that if you treat the thyrotoxicosis and you maintain that, you get less of that hypokalemia, but it's something that you have to keep in the back of your mind as a possibility and the other way around. So someone comes in with the hypokalemia and the weakness, you got to look for that thyroid disease as a possible inciting incident to that hypokalemia. That's exactly right. And often when people have the genetic form of hypokalemic periodic paralysis, which is a channelopathy, they're younger at onset. And when people are a little bit older, and this is the first time it happens, then the thyrotoxicosis or that form of it tends to be more common. So let's talk about the initial management. You get this low potassium back. Obviously, it's a priority to give him potassium, but how would you give it? So again, I remember there's something about you don't want to give a ton of IV potassium here because it's not like the potassium has left their body. The potassium is shifted. So it's not in the serum, it's in the cells. And the danger is that if you give him a bunch of IV potassium, 
And then that potassium shifts back out of the cells. You're going to cause them to be hyperkalemic. And then you're kind of chasing your tail. And let's be honest, Jane, you look kind of silly when you both treat hypokalemia and then subsequently treat hyperkalemia. That doesn't look good for you. So if I remember correctly, you want to try to give it as oral supplementation and then just see how the patient does. Most of the time, I think they resolve, but if it's due to our oral potassium or just due to the shifting that they do themselves, I'm not 100% sure. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, IV potassium is something that is pretty dangerous. That's how we kill people, right? I mean, like, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a definite place where we can make iatrogenic errors. So you want to reserve your IV potassium for those cases that are really severe. Now, you could categorize this case as pretty severe. This guy has, you know, voice weakness. He can't move at all. So there is a role here for IV potassium, but that's kind of a judgment call as to balancing the risk versus benefit and the safety of giving IV potassium. And certainly oral potassium is much, much safer. So that is always the first route you want to start with if someone can take oral potassium. So we started with 60 milliequivalents of PO potassium. You could even go as high as 80 milliequivalents of PO potassium. And then you can also start IV and you could start it at a low dose, which is how is the, that's the safest way to go. And then you're going to want to, of course, recheck. Just like you said, you don't want to overshoot. Many people would also add magnesium to it. It's a very safe thing to give. And you, you, you know those cases where you just can't get their potassium up and that's because they're mag depleted and those two things work very well together. So you, know, you may also consider giving magnesium if there's no contraindication. It's really a place, Jan, where you need that point of care electrolytes to get that answer done quickly, but also to follow them because you send off the blood to the lab and then you don't get a report for like an hour. And then it's like 90 minutes and you're like, well, I have a creatinine and a BUN and I have a chloride and I was, why don't I have a potassium yet? And you realize that they're running it again and again and again because there's something wrong with it. And you're like, can you just tell me the level instead of continuously running it and having that bedside check or the blood gas that you can get done really quickly is a game changer. So if you don't have that in your department, it's going to really think about because it can really change the way you treat these patients and not just the hypokalemic periodic paralysis, but all the patients you see with DKA or any other electrolyte abnormality are really going to be benefited by having something that you can get really rapidly so you're not just waiting and waiting and waiting. And Jan, I guess my question is, you give them the PO potassium, you give them a little bit of IV, you give them a little magnesium. Did he get better like really fast or was it a day or so before he got better? Yeah, it actually takes some time, like with a lot of these types of conditions. Although we would like them to get magically better, it takes time for that shifting to happen, like you talked about, for things to equilibrate. They don't equilibrate on the time scale that we would like them to. <laughs> so often it's not an instantaneous, you know, gratifying, like, all of a sudden he's just better. But, you know, is he going in the right direction? And he was telling us over the few hours that we were starting this treatment that he was feeling better generally and he wasn't feeling worse. So, you know, if you're trending towards at least you're not getting worse, that's a good sign. But, you know, some other take-home things, you can, there are drugs that people are on to prevent attacks in cases of recurrent and frequent hypokalemic paralysis. So there are people who take potassium-sparing diuretics, for example. There is one drug out there that's specifically tailored for this condition. In the case of thyrotoxic periodic paralysis, just controlling the hyperthyroidism can be the answer for the most part. But it's, this also exists on a spectrum. There are some people who have uh, this condition and have you know, mild bouts of it where they get sort of mild weakness. And then there's these sort of severe cases like the one I'm describing. So it's an interesting condition. There's a lot to learn about it. Yeah, there's definitely some interesting stuff around this. And, and I know it can be triggered by a number of different things. And the two pearls I think we really have to take home from this, Jan, is one, don't replete them aggressively. And two, if it's the first presentation, think about that thyroid, especially in a patient who's a little bit older, 
get that TSH, get them worked up for a possible thyroid condition, because if you control that, you control the hypokalemic periodic paralysis. Great case, Jan. Not one that we're going to see often, but I think it's really important for us to think about that differential when you have the weakness that is not just in one part or the other. We talk about stroke all the time, but that kind of generalized weakness. What do you do? How do you work that patient up? Absolutely. And you can imagine when you see a patient like this, it all seems very neurologic because this is a neurologic condition. It's a muscle channelopathy. It's a neurologic condition. But the answer to the quandary is an electrolyte, you know, to get that point of care electrolyte. And that is really going to be the cornerstone of treatment here. So it's a really a combination of something metabolic with something neurologic. And I think it's a really interesting condition. There is a corpendium chapter out there for you guys to look into if you want to read more about it. And, you know, when you hear these cases, if you've never seen a case, this is a great time to review it. So check that out. Excellent. And a great way for us to start the month off, get into the rest of our content. And we really do have some fantastic pieces this month, Jen. There's a couple that I particularly liked. I got to talk to Scott Weingart about hypothermic cardiac arrest and hypothermia, how we should be treating it with really a little bit of a paradigm shift towards that sickest group of patients. If you have ECMO available, you should be calling for ECMO. And the other piece I really liked was the last piece of the month, which was a little bit of a narrative from Justin Morgenstern talking about how it may not be a big part of our training, but we really should be having discussions with our patients about their advanced directives, about what they would really want when things happen down the line and how much treatment they would actually want. This month also, you have the opportunity to review retrobulbar hematoma and how to do a lateral canthotomy, which is of course accompanied by a great MRAP HD video. And this is a good opportunity to review that if you haven't done it in a while. Jen, I once had a New Year's Eve where my team did five lateral canthotomies. <laughs> no way. Five lateral canthotomies. Five, they were almost all necessary. No, five lateral canthotomies. I, I remember calling the ophthalmologist for the third one. Yeah. And she said, you've got to be freaking kidding me. <laughs> really? And I'm like, maybe you should just sleep here with us tonight. Maybe that's going to be better. Five lateral canthotomies, which then forced me to say, do I really feel comfortable doing this procedure? And I really need to learn more. But that video that Jess has put together is absolutely fantastic. And now for a special announcement. Hey, Repscalians, before we get into uh, the show, let me just say that uh, we are doing something that we haven't done for years, and that is we're back to ASIP doing a conference within a conference. We did that, I think, in 2018. It was huge. It was big. It was large. We're doing it again. We're doing some emergency medicine. We're doing some urgent care. We're rolling out a whole bunch of new stuff in the Corpendium and MRAP-like universes, and uh, we're going to do it at ASIP. We'll have our booths there. We'll have our faculty there. It's going to be bigger than Ben-Hur. And the rumors are true. So, uh, you know, sign up for ASIP this year, and we'll see you uh, all over the place. Sign up for that conference within said conference, and also we'll see you down in the uh, the Boothy area. There's so much to tell you about. More later. Herbert out. All right, and with that, Jan, let's drop into all of that great content, and I'll see you on the other side of the mailbag. All right, Swami, let's get going. Yeah! What? Time again for Critical Care Mailbag. Critical Care Mailbag. Scott, great to hear your voice, man. How's it going? Hey, Swami. It's going really well. Good to hear from you, man. Yeah, I've got a, a really fun topic to get into, one that I think is a bit at the core of emergency medicine management, which is the hypothermic patients. You ready to dive in? I'd love to talk about that. That's cold. That's cold. Mild hypothermia. All right, let's start with the patient who is cold but doesn't need aggressive resuscitation. What's your cutoff there to say, 
you know, this patient's cold, but I don't need to be really doing the full court press with everything. You know, generally, if they're above 32 degrees, uh, you're pretty much safe to just let them see if they can rewarm on their own without too much work. I guess I would push that up a little bit higher if they had like CNS dysfunction, you know, like you think their altered mental status might be from being at 33 degrees uh, or maybe at the extremes of age a little bit higher on the temp. But generally 32 and above, you don't worry about them too much. And if you take that patient who's 32 degrees, they don't have a lot of neurologic dysfunction. What point do you say, wow, this patient is not warming up the way that I expect them to? All right. What the literature would tell you is they're supposed to go up a degree Celsius per hour if it's just environmental exposure. Usually they'll they'll go even further than that. But if they're not hitting a degree an hour and they came in at like 32.5, you have to start thinking about a differential that includes hypoglycemia, which hopefully you've picked up, but (laughs) it can be missed. You know, the patient just comes in cold and no one thinks to do a finger stick and uh, you don't really rewarm until your sugar is capable of making your muscles move. ETOH, Addison's disease, infection, or myxedema. And if they're not rewarming, I'll probably send that shotgun set of labs at that point to look at all of those. And hopefully that finger stick's been done by that point. So they come in 32 degrees, mild altered mental status. You leave them for an hour. They're not rewarming. Are you going to empirically give them a dose of steroids and antibiotics and maybe even thyroid hormone? Or what exactly is your pathway there? Yeah, you know, I think I'd do the first two. I don't think I'd have much problem doing cultures, obviously, and then sending off just a random cortisol and, and maybe giving them some steroids and antibiotics as I, I search for a septic source. Would I give thyroid hormone? No, no, I wouldn't. Because first of all, the medication is not going to work that quickly anyway. And I think at this stage of the game, every ED should be able to get back a TSH. Now, if you're in that rare ED that can't get that back, and I'm sure they're out there, I'm sure in some of the rural places you just can't, then I, I don't know, man. I thankfully have never been in that circumstance. What would you do? Well, so my current shop, our turnaround time on TSH is about 24 hours. We get it back the next day. So I will empirically treat if I think there's enough going in that direction. Sure. George Will has talked about it before with us, the lows, they're bradycardic, they're hypotensive, and they're hypothermic. That might be enough to say thyroid could be at play here. Obviously, if you get the obvious things, like they've got a big scar across their neck, that's mm. an easy one. But other than that, I'm fairly liberal because I can't get the result back. But in my prior work, sometimes the TSH came back before the basic metabolic panel. In which case, I wasn't empirically using it very much. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah, I think if there's some uh, red flags, then by all means empirically treat. Would you do it in just the patient who has nothing else going on? That would be a hard quandary for me to answer. Oh, look at Michael. He's still in. I'm trying to. He's still in. Adjust. He's crazy. Severe hypothermia. We see the mild hypothermia patient pretty frequently. It's good to have a little bit of guidance of how we should be managing that patient as we've discussed. Let's move to the sicker patients with hypothermia, and we can break those up into a couple of categories. The paper that still holds up was by Doug Brown, who actually did two episodes with Mel on this topic. I think it's got to be a decade ago on MRAP, and they're really good. And then he put a New England Journal paper out there, which for me is still the paper I recommend people read. So we'll put that in the show notes. But he breaks it into four categories. So one, you have hypothermia one, which is the patient we just spoke about, 35 to 32. Two, you have hypothermia two, which is below 32. You got to do something, but they're above 28. And for those patients, we could do external stuff, but we're not going to do the crazy stuff we'll talk about just in a bit. Three, there's hypothermia category three. That's 28 to 24. The patient's often unconscious. They might be having a severe bradycardia. They might be having hemodynamic and cardiac instability. They're sick, but they're not coding yet. And then four, hypothermia category four is the patients who are actually in cardiac arrest and they're often less than 24 degrees Celsius. 
So maybe we talk first, Swami, if you're amenable to that 32 to 28 degree group. 32 to 28. What kind of interventions are we going to bring for that patient to get them warm? Generally want to, if you have them, use some kind of external warming device, whether it be a forced air device or uh, the blankets. You know, I'm very torn as to whether if you have an Arctic sun, you should use it because it's, it works nicely, but it's $3,000 a pop. And so you have to really make a decision of how rich your hospital is in that case. So external stuff and then the less invasive internal stuff, meaning warm oxygen, warm IV fluids, though they really don't make a much difference. They just keep things from getting worse. But these patients are all dehydrated. It's a real tip you should take home. If you have a hypothermic patient, they need fluids. So don't give them cold fluids because then that will make them colder. Give them warm fluids, even though it won't warm them up, it'll keep them from getting worse. And that's generally what you're going to do on these patients between 28 to 32, so long as they don't start developing hemodynamic instability. The warm humidified O2, I think, is a little bit undervalued of, of how much that can really benefit. And with the fluids, are you nuking your fluids or you keep them in your blanket warmer? You know, we are lucky enough at every place I've had because it's so cheap to just have warm fluids in the blanket warmer. I think that's what you should do. Microwaving has been looked at and it's, it's remarkably efficacious for warming a bag of fluids, but everyone is worried about the inconsistency between microwaves leaving the hot pockets. Hot pockets! No pun intended. Uh, within that <laughs> bag of IV fluids. And it, it's somewhat dangerous. So a lot of the sources know it works, but don't recommend you do it because they don't want a patient to get an internal vascular burn. That seems kind of bad. Now you mentioned, Swami, and it's a good point that you, you brought it up, is that most of our data on the warm oxygen was like predicate on like six liters nasal cannula or you know uh, a non-rebreather mask. Most of that's leaking into the environment. High flow nasal cannula, I haven't seen the study yet. It might exist. I haven't seen it. But I bet that's remarkably more efficacious than any of the other things we've done because the warming is good, the humidification is there, and we know that the fluid, you know, the humidified gas transmits temperature even better than the dry. And I bet if someone did a study on that, it would be markedly more effective than the old nasal cannulas for, for warming. Oh, pocket. 24 to 28. Scott, let's go to the next group of hypothermic patients in that 24 to 28 range. These patients, again, alteration of mental status. You said they might even be comatose at that point. Any differences between what you're doing in terms of resuscitation for that patient to warm them up? Yeah, these patients are the ones you really have to be worried about. And they have a high predilection to go into cardiac arrest. Uh, almost all of them at that temp are unconscious, so they need airway management. And you have to ask yourself, you know, do we have any access to ECMO at our center? And if you don't, it should be a real consideration of getting them somewhere that does. I think it is a good transfer. It's a good ECMO run. We'll talk a little bit more about ECMO later on because the patients are on at such a brief period of time. It's almost universally effective at reversing their spiral towards death or actually bringing patients back even if they are actually in cardiac arrest. So you would rather them code at the ECMO center than at your place. Now, if that's not feasible or it's snowing outside, which is why they're hypothermic, so you can't get a transfer done, then these are the patients where the more invasive forms of internal rewarming actually come onto the table. Which form? So, I mean, we're still going to do the humidified oxygen. If we're intubating them, that's easy to do humidified warmed oxygen. We're going to give them warmed fluids so that we don't make more heat loss. But then what other invasive things are we doing? Are we doing the bilateral chest tubes here? Are we doing warmed fluids in the bladder? Which invasive measures are you going to at this point? All right. You know, there's a bunch out there. You've mentioned some of them, you know, like the peritoneal lavage and all this stuff. I personally am not a big fan of almost all of them. 
And this is my take. You know, you could differ. You could look at the literature and the practice at your center and make your own decisions. But I'm going to tell you my take, because that's basically all I have to offer on critical care mailbag, is the evidence, which it's not there for this issue, and then my take. I like thoracic lavage in these patients. I think it is the cleanest, safest way to go. I don't like messing around in the peritoneum. I'm sure there are people out there that that's safer for them to do than chest tubes. You know, like you get a person who's placing these peritoneal dialysis catheters all the time. I'm sure they're remarkably safe at it. But for me, what makes thoracic lavage even more attractive than the fact that it's a procedure we're all used to in emergency medicine is that you're actually bathing the heart in warm fluids. And that's the organ you really have to keep going. You know, the brain is preserved during this cold spell and the heart is what's going to kill them. So I want a warm heart and the lungs have big surface area. I'd like warm lung. I don't do bilateral. I don't think that's necessary. What I do is two forms of access into the left chest. Why the left chest? Because that's where the heart sits. And we could actually talk about how I do this. Do you want to go there, Swami? I do. I do. I want to know where you're putting those chest tubes in order to give that warm lavage fluid. All right. So I only place one chest tube and I place a pigtail. So I place an anterior pigtail. That's going to be a 14 French in most places. And then I try to get an anterior. And since there's no landing zone, as I call it, a space where the lung is not touching the pleura, which there would be in a pneumothorax, I actually like to do a semi-open approach for my pigtail. So I'll actually make an incision. I'll get in there with a hemostat and then I'll just thread in the straight in pigtail and I'll place it anterior. If you can, don't worry about it too much. It'll still work regardless. And now I have a pigtail in there. And then posteriorly, and this you actually can force to go posterior, you could actually get your finger in there. I'll place a 32 to 36 French chest tube. And now you need some form of warming device that you would use for blood. But instead of blood, you're just going to put fluid through it and you attach that to the pigtail. And now you could actually fill the chest. Now you could do this continuously if you want. You could have a continuous flow of IV fluids into the pigtail and out through the chest tube. You just need something to stick it into, whether it be a bucket, which isn't really sterile or a pleurovac, but you're going to be emptying them a bunch and it's a pain in the butt. You know, if you could find one of the uh, pleurovacs that have auto transfusion capabilities, that actually allows you to empty them in real time. And that's actually the best of all worlds. But, you know, work out what you have to. This patient's going to die. You know, the, the sterility is not the, the most pertinent issue right now. So if you have to empty that chest tube into like, you know, just have it emptying into air, uh, into a bucket on the floor, that'll be fine. You know, nothing should come in. It's a continuous flow out. Alternatively, Scott notes that you can also infuse fluids, let them dwell in the left side of the chest, and then remove them so you're intermittently giving infusions as opposed to a continuous infusion, but he clearly prefers the continuous infusion instead. Now, some people actually say that you could just do one chest tube and put it in and then take it out through the same one. And yeah, that's workable. But like I said, my preference is to do a continuous infusion. Like I'm continuously bathing that chest cavity in warm fluids. I just keep putting new and new IV bags up there on the level one or the Belmont and just let them flow out as they go. And that is a very workable, invasive internal measure. Now, but there's some others, Swami, that people don't think about and I really want to have on their radar screen. The next one up is actually hemodialysis or continuous renal replacement therapy. And it just means, you know, getting someone out of bed. But if you could put in an HD cath or if you really want to get rewarmed even quicker, you could place two cortices in two separate veins and just hook that up to an HD circuit. And those are very good at bringing the fluids up to temp. So you could have them just set that to normal, or some machines will even go super therapeutic temperatures. And actually, that is a form of, you know, lower flow blood bypass, right? You're taking blood out, warming it, and putting back in. That's one that people should have on the radar. And I might do that 
in conjunction with something like the thoracic lavage. Scott, let's say that I don't have a level one or a Belmont infuser. How do I keep those fluids warm as I'm getting them into the patient? You know, Swami, I'll answer this first uh, in a, a tangential way, which is, you know, every ED should have antidal CO2, no matter how small you are. And I got to say, every ED should have one of these transfusion devices because you really can't if you have a sick trauma patient and they do come in everywhere, regardless of your size, regardless of your, whether you're a trauma center. You can't really do the job you need to do very well without these devices. I think you should have one. But if they didn't, then I would say it's the dwell time. So you put some in, you know, like you put a few liters of warm fluid in, you took out of your blanket warmer, let it sit for a little while, and then through that same chest tube, unclamp it, let it flow out, and then do it again. That's how I'd get away with it without a level one. But if you're going to do continuous infusion, you really do need some device. ECMO. Let's talk about ECMO because clearly that's where we need to go next. In these patients who have the severe hypothermia, they haven't arrested yet. Should ECMO be our standard if we have it available? Yeah, I think it really should. It gets the job done so quickly and it really gets the patient off ECMO very quickly. So they're not exposed to all of the risks of it. And, you know, they don't need enormous cannulae like they would in some of the other reasons we use this modality. It's just really the way to go for any patient in this severe range and certainly for any patient in cardiac arrest. Under 24. Let's get to that cardiac arrest patient because I think that's really the next step is we've got that patient who's under 24 degrees, or sometimes they're not under 24 degrees, but they have the cardiac arrest. Is anything different, or am I doing the same things? Am I doing the chest tube? I'm trying to get dialysis, or I'm trying to do ECMO. What else do I have at my disposal? Well, you know, it's really great to have a mechanical CPR device because this code is going to be going on <laughs> a long time. And these patients actually can survive long, long cardiac arrest. So it is worth doing it a long time. So can't be cold and dead, right? Got to be warm and dead. Exactly. And you know what warm and dead is, is a source of controversy, Swami. My number is somewhere between 30 and 32. Look, there's some patients, you know, they're cold and they're dead. And I don't need to rewarm them to know that, but you can't get away with not attempting it. And some patients just, I could never get to 32. Like unless I put a dead person on ECMO a person I knew was dead on ECMO, which is not good. So 30 is a much more reasonable number. Now, I haven't seen any definitive source. All of the sources I've seen have ranged between 30 and 32, but 30 is a lot easier to achieve. But yes, they do need to be warm and dead. So we're going to do all of these different invasive things. And you mentioned that there are some patients you see and you know they are dead. What are those things? What are the things that you see and say, there's nothing I can do to get this patient back? And are you starting that full bore resuscitation on that group of patients? You know, Swami, we had talked in a different segment about whether a potassium that's super high precludes return from cardiac arrest. And we were talking about it in a non-hypothermia arrest. And I said, I'm not really so sure that's so great. For a hypothermia arrest, it actually is good. So I think it's greater than nine is the number. I'm just always forgetting whether it's greater than an equal to or just greater than. But if you have a sky high potassium, that's one way to know. And, you know, there's some in the field things that, that preclude the necessity of taking patients in like avalanche victims and stuff like that. But once they get to the emergency department, it's really tough not to give them a shot. Unless, you know, you could have a clear story that they've been found in their house after, you know, five days and, you know, have something very clear. I think you have to give them a shot at resuscitation in most of these cases. We reviewed an avalanche case back in December of 2021 in rural medicine. Go and check that out. It's got all of the information on those situations where the patient is not going to benefit from that resuscitation. But Scott, before we close up, there's this idea of the after drop. After you resuscitate the patient to the temperature you're going for, is that a real thing? Yeah. So the idea of after drop and that you have to then worry that 
you know, if you if you externally warm these patients rapidly, that something bad is going to happen and they're going to have, a, you know, a return of their cult. That was dispensed all the way back in 2012. And again, I recommend going to Doug Brown's paper on the topic in the New England Journal, and he will just go through all the evidence on how that's crap. So just get these patients rewarmed, and it doesn't really matter how you get it done. Summary. Going through all of these different hypothermic patients on the spectrum with the mild hypothermia where they're around maybe 32 degrees, you can kind of not do much of anything except keep them in a warm area allow them to warm on their own, but notice that if they're not warming appropriately to think about infection and adrenal crisis and possible severe hypothyroidism as reasons why they are not appropriately warming. In the group of patients who is in that 28 to 32 range, we can give them either a blanket rewarming system, external rewarming. We can do some humidified air, high flow nasal cannula might be really useful here. In the next group down, that 24 to 28, these are the patients who, if you don't get right on top of them and start warming them immediately, they're going to crash. They're going to have bad outcomes. And so we want to be more aggressive here. We can use that chest tube system like you outlined to get warm fluids around the heart. We can consider going to CVVHD. We can think about getting ECMO on board as well. And then when you have that patient who is arrested, we want to try to get them warm, knowing that there are some patients will never be able to warm, but in the ones that are possibly salvageable, we're going to do all of those invasive things, but ECMO is probably where we need to be going earlier in that group of patients because of how rapidly it can rewarm the patient. You did it, Swami. All right, Scott, thanks so much for going through all this. Absolutely. Rural Medicine Talks. Greetings all, it's Vanessa Cardi here, back for another Rural Medicine piece. And I want to set the scene for you. It was a late summer evening in a small rural community, and the days were getting shorter and the air was getting cooler. I was working a fairly busy emergency room shift that same day when a 52-year-old male patient presented with abdominal pain and mild nausea. The nurse triaged him as a P3, put him on a stretcher in a room, and came back to give me a heads up. The patient had told the nurse that he was waiting for gallbladder surgery for recurrent bouts of biliary colic, and he said that the pain he was having now was pretty similar to those previous gallstone attacks. While he did have some morphine at home in case of such an attack, he'd actually always been scared to take them without medical supervision after hearing so many terrible news stories about opiates. The patient's vitals at triage were unremarkable, except for a heart rate in the 90s, but the nurse said he was in a fair bit of pain, so that all seemed to fit. I asked the nurse to do an ECG, put in an IV, and draw some labs, and once I had signed off on the ECG that looked fine, I ordered some dimenhydrinate for the nausea. I was actually able to get to see him pretty quickly, so when I went in to see him, the anti-nausea meds hadn't really fully kicked in yet, and he was still feeling pretty sick to his stomach, and he was also in a lot of pain. He said the pain had started an hour or so ago and it had snuck up on him out of nowhere. He hadn't eaten for several hours when it started, but it felt the same as his other episodes of biliary colic. He had epigastric and right upper quadrant, left upper quadrant pain even, and some nausea. No fever or chills, no pain anywhere else, no actual vomiting, no urinary symptoms. He hadn't had a bowel movement yet that day, but he thinks he'd had one the day before. No signs of upper or lower GI bleeding, no chest pain, no respiratory symptoms. On exam, when I saw him, his heart rate was 96, his blood pressure was 143 on 65, his sats were 97, and he was afebrile. He was able to talk, but he was clearly in a degree of discomfort, and during the interview, he had episodes of worsening pain that made him curl up and sort of go silent for several seconds at a time. His abdomen did not appear to be distended on exam, but it was difficult to assess for peritonitis because of his large body habitus, and also he had a lot of voluntary guarding. But one thing that was reassuring was that he was able to move around on the bed without too much discomfort. 
His pain definitely seemed to be worse in the epigastrium and upper quadrants, but not clearly worse on one side or the other. And the rest of the exam was unremarkable. So for a patient with clear biliary colic, I don't always order labs, but they'd already been drawn up. And there's just something a little odd here, so I asked for a CBC, creat, lights, LFTs, and bilirubin. I also threw in a lipase just because he did have some midline and more left upper quadrant pain, so I wanted to be sure this wasn't an early pancreatitis from perhaps an impacted stone. I asked for an IV NS bolus of 500 cc's and 5 milligrams of morphine IV, and I went off to review his chart. So he was diagnosed with cholelithiasis about 18 months prior. He had been booked for surgery, but then the COVID pandemic hit, and the surgery was delayed repeatedly, initially by the hospital due to capacity issues, and then by the patient because of the isolation rules. You see, one of the ways that we managed to keep COVID out of some of our most remote communities was to have strict isolation policies in place, where patients had to isolate for five to seven days in the south after a procedure or any appointment, and then another five to seven days in the north upon their return. Our communities were putting people up in hotel rooms, both in the south and the north, in order to facilitate this, and clearly it was very hard on everyone. This will be one of the many serious side effects of the pandemic. So many people missing follow-up appointments or surgeries because they could not manage to follow these strict isolation rules. Now, once Omicron hit and it managed to get into the community and kind of everywhere, these rules were gradually disbanded. But for two years, our patients had to weigh the benefits of in-person follow-ups or procedures with the risks of travel and the difficulties of isolation. Massive amounts of days lost from work. Massive amounts of days away from family. It wasn't an easy time for many people, and the effect of all these delays in care are going to be long-lasting, and we probably haven't even really begun to understand the impacts fully yet. So, back to his story. So he'd had three episodes of biliary colic since that diagnosis 18 months ago. The episodes had always been pretty typical. They would come on after eating goose or some other rich meal, and he would come to the emergency room each time, despite having a prescription for pain meds, because he was simply nervous about using the morphine. His symptoms usually got better after a dose of morphine PO and some antiemetics, and he was usually home within about four to six hours of being triaged. Of note, he also had a history of type 2 diabetes, hypertension, he'd had a previous NSTEMI, he had CKD stage 2, and he had some early signs of diabetic retinopathy. He'd also had his appendix out as a child, and he had a 30-pack-year history of cigarette smoking. And of note, very helpfully, on the ultrasound where his gallstones were officially diagnosed 18 months ago, his abdominal aorta was totally normal in appearance. In terms of his diabetes, they were pretty well controlled overall. His sugars today were 11, or in US um, units, 198. So after a few hours, I got his labs back, and they showed a white blood cell count of 16, normal hemoglobin, creatinine of 110, normal lights, normal lipase, and normal LFTs and bilirubin. Nothing too interesting, really, except for perhaps that white count being a bit higher than I might have expected. I headed off to see him again and was reminding myself to treat the patient and not the labs, and I was hoping that he would be feeling better and just ready to go home like he had on previous times. But when I walked into the room, he was not feeling better. He was curled up in a ball, and he was making retching sounds. He said the pain meds had helped for about 30 minutes, but then the pain came back much worse, and this time the pain was constant. His heart rate was now 110. He was still afebrile, his sats were fine, and his blood pressure was 132 over 89. I checked his abdomen again, and this time I noted that it was much harder for him to move around in the bed to change positions. Lying flat was very painful, and his abdomen was diffusely tender. I couldn't hear any bowel sounds, but he was also moaning in pain, so there was perhaps an explanation there as well. So to me, this was no longer acting like a typical episode of biliary colic. I tried to get a better sense from him of his usual biliary colic histories and find out if this is how he always progressed, 
and he confirmed that the way things were going now was very unusual. He also mentioned that in the past four or five days leading up to the episode today, he'd had these little mini sort of tiny episodes of abdominal pain. They never lasted more than 20 or 30 minutes, so he never sought care for them. But he did say that that pattern was unusual as well. I tried to find out if there'd been anything else different in the last few days that would fit this change of pattern. And in retrospect, he says maybe his appetite had decreased, and he said, yes, he did feel a little bit off. So here I was really having to battle my anchoring bias. I had pretty quickly pegged this man as a case of biliary colic after my initial history and physical, but things were leading me away from that now. So this is a key, key point of this story. In emergency medicine, one of the real big mistakes you can make, one that I used to make all the time, is early closure. I've seen this before. I've decided what it is. And now what I'm going to do is ignore all of the other information that comes in Or as things change, I'm going to say, yeah, it's still what I thought it was 30 minutes ago. Don't do that. When the patient changes, when the information changes, do not have early closure, but do as Vanessa has done, like, "Mm, I'm missing something. What else could be going on here? I ordered some more analgesia for him and switched him to Ondansetron for the nausea and then asked for an abdominal x-ray series. Remember, we don't have a scan where I work, so this was one of my only options. And the plane film looked pretty unremarkable, with only three air fluid levels, but his pain began to get much, much worse after the x-ray. I asked for repeat labs at that time and threw in a venous blood gas as well. Now, with this sudden spike of intense pain, he was tacky at 115, his blood pressure was 110 on 60, sats were still fine, respirate was 24, he was breathing fast with that pain, and his temperature was now 38, or 100.4. His abdomen was now very tender, and he was having a lot more pain moving around in the bed or when changing position. I asked our ECRE technician to help me do an abdominal ultrasound, and all we could see across the epigastrium was a large, almost rectangular structure that was mostly obscured by intestinal gas. If you imagine a drawing of the human GI tract and think of the transverse colon, that is basically what the image we had looked like, except it was grainy and black and white and didn't have useful labels on it. We couldn't really identify what it was, but I assumed, just from the appearance and the location, that it was some part of the large bowel. Although I was also very worried that it was perhaps part of the pancreas, given its location and the degree of pain that was involved. So the sight of what looked like a gas-filled intestinal structure on ultrasound made me think bowel obstruction, but I kept getting pulled away from that diagnosis because the abdominal series didn't show any signs of this. But if it wasn't that, then what could it be? His aorta was normal, We couldn't actually see his gallbladder well because his entire upper abdomen was obscured by this odd rectangular structure, and there were no other signs of acute pathology. His labs came back, his white blood cells count had gone to 22, his creatinine was 115 despite fluid, his pH was 7.28, and his lights were still normal. Now, mesenteric ischemia was certainly moving up on my list of concerns, as was an abscess, but from where or how? Uh, Intersusception, given the intense and colicky and worsening nature of the pain, perhaps this could be it, and maybe the lead point was an undiagnosed tumor, or perhaps it was a hernia that I wasn't able to pick up on exam. And it was this unsatisfying differential combined with worsening clinical status and labs that prompted me to call for the transfer. The receiving doctor was great, and while he said that this was probably a partial bowel obstruction that would resolve on its own with time and bowel rest and some NG tube decompression, he accepted the patient for a scan as he just sounded, well, sick. It was another five hours before the plane arrived to get him, and I'm telling you, I was very happy to see this plane land. 
Because while waiting for the plane, he had an episode of acute escalating pain that lasted 15 minutes and then suddenly eased off abruptly. Now that might sound reassuring, but with that easing off came a drop in blood pressure. He went from a systolic blood pressure in the 110s to 120s to something closer to the 85s, 90s, and a heart rate in the 120s despite ongoing fluid boluses and maintenance. I had already started him on broad-spectrum antibiotics by this point and was monitoring him very closely. Now, the pain was much improved now, which was great, because given that his blood pressure was quite low, I was grateful I wasn't going to be pushing analgesics that would have further tanked his pressure. But he became more and more hypotensive while waiting for the transport, so I drew up pressers to have at the bedside and kept some fluids going. He never actually needed those pressers in the hospital, but about one hour into the flight, his MAP dropped to 55 and his tachycardia was worsening, so the pressers were started. Once he got to the hospital in the south, about 13 to 14 hours after first presenting to my emergency room, he was quickly examined and then taken straight to the CT scan. So, before you get the answer, what do you think is going on? What would you have done differently? But what is your differential? Do you have it in your head? Do, 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 do. What do you think now? Do, 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 do. Where it was revealed that he had had a small bowel obstruction that had actually perforated. Really? I didn't see that coming. I thought, 100%, this is inner susception. But I was wrong. The source of the obstruction was unclear at first, but the emergency room doctor was told by the radiologist that perhaps it was a foreign body. This all seemed a bit odd, so we all waited to hear the results of the surgery that he rapidly underwent. When they opened him up in the operating room, they did indeed find the bowel obstruction that had perforated, and they found that foreign body. The foreign body was in fact a stone, but not a gallstone. This was a stone from a peach. Yep, a peach pit. It turns out that about a week or so prior, he had accidentally swallowed an entire peach pit, but aside from it being a bit scratchy on the way down, as he said, he hadn't thought anything else of it. He had kept eating and pooping and doing his usual thing. He had had some episodes of abdominal pain that would pass on their own, And while he slowly lost his appetite and began to feel a bit unwell over the course of several days, it was only the acute onset of pain that he attributed to gallstones that actually brought him to the hospital. So from what we can piece together is that he had probably a partial small bowel obstruction from this peach pit that was likely blocking the ileocecal valve on and off, causing the intermittent episodes of pain in the several days leading up to his presentation. I would imagine that in this process, the bowel likely became inflamed in that area, And then once the peach pit got stuck again, the obstruction was no longer partial and the pressure on the bowel wall that was already inflamed sort of subacutely meant that it perforated relatively quickly. In retrospect, we likely saw this perforation happen when he experienced a rapid escalation in pain and then a fairly abrupt decrease in pain. And then soon after, a drop in his blood pressure as intestinal fluid presumably leaked into his peritoneum and he started to get worse. Peach pit small bowel obstruction leading to uh, perforation was absolutely on my differential diagnosis. But, you know, that's why I'm a legend in my own mind. So what lessons did I learn from this? I think the biggest lesson I learned from this was how quickly I anchored on biliary colic as the most likely diagnosis. From the moment the triage nurse told me there was a patient with his typical gallstone pain, I was already heading down that investigation and treatment pathway in my head. I guess I gave a nod to a differential by asking for an ECG in someone who was at risk of cardiac issues, But once that was checked off, it was just so easy to keep thinking about biliary colic. 
Should I have asked for a scan earlier? I mean, we don't have one, but in retrospect, of course I would say that I wish I could have scanned this patient in my emergency room right away, or had him whisked away in an airplane to the nearest scanner in the South. That way, maybe he would not have perforated his bowels. But in reality, I'm not sure I could have pushed for a transfer or a scan any earlier than I did in this case, as when he arrived, he was clinically stable and had a very reasonable alternative diagnosis that seemed most plausible. And this is one of the challenges of rural medicine, trying to outwit the disease process that may or may not be brewing inside your patient. Another lesson I learned is that I want to better understand how this patient's plain films were largely unremarkable, but on ultrasound there was this unusual structure. The blockage was proximal to the large bowel, but this structure on ultrasound looked so much like I would imagine a large bowel would look like an ultrasound, so I need to bone up on my abdominal ultrasound findings. I'm pleased to say that after all of this, the patient has done well and is back at work and back to his normal life. He said that there are only two things that are different about his life now, that he has a scar on his abdomen and that he seems to have developed an aversion to peaches. I cannot imagine why. Thank you so much, everyone. Chat with you next month. The first patient, trauma activation, young male transferred to our center with a right-sided femur fracture from a motorcycle accident. He was stable, but he had a pretty significant contusion and a lot of swelling over the right hip and pelvis. The orthopedic surgeon came in, he looked at the patient, and he asked if we had considered a Morel-Lavalli lesion. I basically looked at him. I really wasn't too sure what to make of that. Brit Long. Oh, Brit, I can't believe you don't know this one. Morel is a mushroom. Lavalle is a little microphone thing they put on your lapel so that everybody in the room can hear you. Correct. And the Morel Lavalle is a mushroom microphone that you can pin to your shirt. Maybe we can do a little voiceover here, uh, pointing out how stupid that answer is. No, we will not do that because it is absolutely correct and not stupid. All right. Well, much like Britt, I think many of us would have looked at the orthopedic surgeon as if he was making up some kind of a new diagnosis. But in fact, this is a real entity that we need to know about and the patient that Britt had was soon followed by a second patient, an older male patient with a fall that also had the same lesion found on CT scan. With those two cases in mind, Britt sat down with Justin Carlson to get the lowdown on this diagnosis. Justin Carlson. morel Lavalli lesions can be missed at the time of the initial evaluation and can be identified later, up to 33% having a delayed presentation. These are cases that present similar to other injuries, but are devastating when they're missed. These are things we need to be considering. When they're delayed, that can lead to increased difficulty in management, long-term morbidity, sepsis, even potential loss of limb. So it's really critical that we identify these early so that we can help patients with their outcomes. What's actually happening with this type of lesion? Morel-Lavalli lesions are a closed degloving injury of the soft tissue. What happens is there's actually separation of the skin and the subcutaneous tissue from the underlying fascia around the muscle. As that skin and subcutaneous tissue gets peeled back and gets degloved, you can get separation, which then leads to leakage from capillaries and lymphatic channels. That then leads to a potential space where 
different types of fluid, serous fluid, blood can form and collect. As that fluid collects and sits there, the hemosiderin that's in the blood starts to form a capsule around that over the next couple of days. What this means is you then have a pocket of fluid that can become infected, it can become necrotic, it can even lead to extensive damage of the surrounding tissues. So it's really important for us to consider this early on because of how much damage can occur to the structures underneath the surface. Yeah, those words, shearing, degloving, never a good thing when it comes to the human body. And lots of bad stuff within that cavity. There have to be some complications. What are the major ones that we need to keep on our radar? This is why it's really critical to diagnose Morel-Lavalli injuries early. If they're not diagnosed and managed appropriately early on, the lesions can worsen, they can expand, they can lead to necrosis of the overlying skin, they can also lead to exposure of the underlying tissues, the injuries, the fractures, and because many of these are associated with fractures, that can lead to other complications with the healing of those injuries. Infection is also a major risk with these types of delayed diagnoses. Those complications make complete sense, especially infection. I mean, all of that material is like the perfect breeding ground for bacteria. What are going to be the most common causes of this lesion? One of my cases was involved in an MVC, and the other one was a simple fall. The most common cause is going to be from high-velocity trauma, car accidents, things like that. It can also be from crush injuries and other blunt trauma. About 25% of these cases are going to be related to motor vehicle collisions. And usually, those involve fractures of the proximal femur, pelvis, and acetabulum. Specifically, the greater trochanter accounts for about 60% of cases. These can also happen, though, with minor injuries. Minor trips, slips, falls can also result in Morel-Lavalli lesions. Finally, they can be associated with direct blows, such as sports injuries resulting in injuries to the knee, or even case reports of abdominoplasty or liposuction can result in Morel-Lavalli lesions. That's actually a fair number of different etiologies. I think the major takeaway is to think about this in the patient with some sort of hip or femur trauma, especially if they have a fracture. We also need to think about it if they've had a prior procedure in that area. But how common is this? Thankfully, for our patients and for us, it's not very common. It occurs in about 8% of acetabular fractures. And there is a male to female predominance of two to one. That fits with both of my patients. They were male. There was some significant trauma involved. And at the bedside, my patients had significant bruising. There was a fair amount of fluctuance over the area. It was also compressible. What should make us think about this lesion at the bedside? Is there anything that's reliable here? One of the real keys is to first consider this in the setting of trauma, especially trauma to the pelvis and lower extremity. Again, up to a third of these can have a delayed presentation, so they may not present on the day of their trauma. But in that setting where there's been trauma, especially to the areas of the pelvis and lower extremity, we need to be considering this. 
often the diagnosis is made retrospectively on imaging or during surgical intervention for the fractures that the patient is being treated for. But you can diagnose these based on your physical exam. As you mentioned, there were significant bruising, fluctuance over the area. Those are key characteristics to look for. Most commonly, patients will present with gradually worsening swelling and pain. They also have tightness in that area. Fluctuance and compressibility, along with swelling, can also be present. One of the other elements of history and physical exam that we need to look for is hyposthesia or anesthesia, because these subdermal afferent nerves can get damaged. There's also increased mobility of the skin that can occur with these types of injuries. Also with skin, you can sometimes notice ecchymosis, cracking, drying, abrasions. Sometimes you may even see frank necrosis, especially in delayed presentations. Even with all of these exam findings, most of these patients are going to be getting some sort of imaging. They may have polytrauma. There could be severe fractures. What do you recommend? While it's really tempting to stop at x-ray, that's only going to show the bony injuries. And while a number of Morel-Lavalli injuries are associated with fractures, not all of them are. And x-ray is not going to show us those fascial layers, the potential space, the development of that lesion. So really, CAT scan or MRI is really going to be the test of choice to see those fascial layers. Once we have the diagnosis, what's the definitive management? This sounds like it's going to be a surgical problem. We have all of that necrotic material, and then we also have the separation of those fascial layers. You know, this is really a great opportunity to discuss this with our orthopedic colleagues or whoever might manage this at your facility. This really takes a team approach to help with this. There's no specific guidelines on therapy, and the recommendations can range from conservative management, which may be something as simple as a compressive wrap around the area. It can involve percutaneous aspiration or could involve open surgery. You really want to talk with your orthopedic surgeon or transfer to a facility where orthopedics is available so they can help decide on management. Summary. The Morel-Lavalli lesion is basically a soft tissue injury that's associated with fractures of the pelvis. It could be the acetabulum, also the proximal femur. This is usually in the setting of some form of trauma. The shearing leads to injury to the lymphatics, also the blood vessels. That creates a potential space, and there can be some major complications like infection. We need to think about this in the setting of trauma to the pelvis or the lower extremity, and we need to keep in mind that up to a third of cases have a delayed presentation. Patients usually present with swelling that gradually worsens. There can be severe pain. We might also find fluctuance and compressibility in that swelling. There might be some skin changes. For our imaging, x-ray really won't help us with the diagnosis. We need either a CT scan or an MRI. Finally, we have several options for treatment. The best bet is to involve our orthopedic surgeons early on. 
is absolutely correct and not stupid. Hey, I'm Rap listeners. I'm Jesse Werner, and we're here today again with Dr. Deidre St. Peter. Deidre, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be back. Dr. St. Peter is a glaucoma specialist and an attending physician in Colorado. Today, we're talking about retrobulbar hematoma. Part one. Yes, retrobulbar hematoma, something that you may and probably will see as emergency medicine specialists. So something that everyone should have a good foundation for. So just remind us, Deidre, what exactly are we talking about when we say retrobulbar hematoma? What is that? So essentially, a retrobulbar hematoma is a compartment syndrome of the orbit. There are tendons and bony structures that are limiting the space inside of the orbit. If there's hemorrhage or hematoma into the orbit, there's a lot of pressure that builds up in that confined space. That pressure can actually put pressure on the optic nerve and the globe. It can lead to ischemia of the optic nerve and decreased vision. We do say that if the optic nerve is ischemic for over around 90 minutes, that ischemia can become permanent and there can be permanent damage to vision. Ooh, okay. So yes, definitely an ocular emergency. I'm glad we're talking about it. Now, generally, I think of these in a traumatic setting. So someone has been in some sort of trauma. They've been in a car accident. They have been in a fight. They've been punched in the eye. Some trauma to the eye leading to this. Is there anything else that comes to mind that can cause a retrobulbar hematoma? That's a great question. Most cases of retrobulbar hematoma are seen with a history of trauma. It's important to keep in mind that a lot of patients, especially older patients, may be on anticoagulation. People may even have blood dyscrasias that they're not aware of. And so minor traumas in these patients can cause bleeding into the orbit as well. I guess less commonly, you could think of things like a spontaneous bleed from a tumor would be something that's not out of the question. I would say that in the majority of cases, a patient will have suffered some sort of trauma to the face or orbit. And walk us through the presentation of this. What are our patients going to be complaining of? What should tip us off this patient might have a retrobulbar hematoma? As we mentioned before, most cases are definitely going to be patients that have suffered some sort of facial or ocular trauma. The presentation of a retrobulbar hematoma, it typically presents in someone with proptosis, meaning that the eye appears to be bulging out. These typically are unilateral, although they can be bilateral. It would be more common to see a unilateral case where somebody is proptotic out of one eye. And there should be resistance to retropulsion. That just means that when you push on the eyelid, you can feel the eyeball behind it and it might feel even rock hard. We like to ask emergency medicine physicians if they felt the eye and if it feels rock hard. The eyelid would probably be very difficult to open. They typically have what's called diffuse subconjunctival hemorrhage, meaning there might be blood all over the conjunctiva. It might be a very red eye. And they probably will have some variable degree of vision loss if it's a true retrobulbar hematoma. That could be someone who has 20-20 in the vision in one eye and 20-40 in the affected eye. Or it could be as bad as no light perception, meaning they're really not able to see anything out of that eye when they come in. If you have access to a tonopen at this time, it's a great chance to check the pressure in both eyes. 
In the affected eye, the pressure we like to say is typically over 40 millimeters of mercury or 40 reading on that tono pen. This would indicate that the pressure in the orbit is acutely elevated and that there probably is a compartment syndrome. When I'm using the tono pen on the eye and I'm getting a pressure reading of 40, is that not the same as the pressure in the orbit? What is that 40 millimeters of mercury actually reflecting? The 40 millimeters of mercury is reflecting the intraocular pressure. The intraocular pressure is elevated because that is in turn reflecting the pressure inside of the orbit. The orbital pressure and the intraocular pressure are not one and the same, although they're very much related. And a good way to tell if there's a compartment syndrome in the orbit is to check that IOP or the intraocular pressure. We typically say that it's pretty good evidence that there's a retrobulbar hematoma if the intraocular pressure is higher than 35 to 40. Usually if it's under 40, we can treat the intraocular pressure with drops and kind of wait out the resolution of the bleeding. But those patients should be monitored very closely. And of course, an ophthalmologist should come in and see them. This is such a good differentiation that I don't think I realized before. So the intraocular pressure being different from the orbital pressure. And when we're talking about the actual orbit of the eye, are we talking about the bony structure that holds the eye? That's the orbit? Correct. So the orbit is comprised of the bony structure that holds in the eye, but there's also a lot of tendons, a lot of soft tissue structures that are holding the eye in place. And that's where the eyelid procedure that we talk about very commonly with a retrobulbar hematoma, which is the lateral canthotomy and cantholysis, becomes so important. Because the orbit is kind of a compartment, again, demarcated by bony structures and very hard tendons and ligaments that are keeping everything in place, we need to be able to release some of that pressure by cutting the lateral canthal tendon. And that's the definitive treatment for releasing that orbital compartment syndrome. Deidre, can you walk us through the anatomy of the eye, the orbit, the globe, where the retrobulbar hematoma is actually taking place? Yes. So I should have mentioned that earlier. When we discuss the eyeball, so we refer to the eye as the globe. Of course, you've heard of an open globe injury. The globe is the eyeball kept in the orbit, and the orbit is a closed compartment making it susceptible to this orbital compartment syndrome or retrobulbar hematoma. Great. Thanks for dumbing that down for me, Deidre. I needed to review some basic anatomy. It's been a little while. My pleasure. All right. So I have someone who has some trauma or they have a bleeding disorder. They're coming in with some proptosis of the eye. I push on the eyeball. It feels pretty rock hard. If I am lucky and they're awake and can engage with me, which is not super common in these situations, then I might get a visual acuity exam and find out that they have pretty decreased vision in that eye. And I'm going to pull out my tono pen and I'm going to go ahead and measure the intraocular pressure. Can you please review with us the proper technique for measuring intraocular pressure with a tono pen? Because it's very easy to mess up. And in these situations, the patients usually have so much edema and they're uncomfortable. And I've found that it makes it very difficult to actually lift the eyelid up high enough that you can get an accurate reading. So can you help me out with that? Yes, I'd be happy to. So you're absolutely right. In a lot of these cases, as you mentioned, they've suffered some sort of a trauma. And in most cases, it's going to be a severe facial or head trauma. 
These patients we will not be able to get a visual acuity from. And the eyelids can be really hard to open in these cases. The best way to do it is to actually have somebody help you out. We mentioned before that when using the tono pen, it's really important to open the eyelids without putting digital or finger pressure on the globe or the eyeball. To do this by yourself in these cases where the eyelids are just so swollen can be really difficult. You might want to ask a nurse or one of your colleagues to come over and help you to check the pressure in both eyes. The best way is by having one hand resting on the cheek and one hand resting on the forehead and using the thumb to kind of pry open those eyelids. At this point, you don't want to put any pressure on the eyeball. Again, it's taking the thumbs and moving the eyelids apart so as to give you space to get the tono pen in there. Once you have that space to actually put the tono pen on the surface of the globe, on the cornea, then you want to tap very lightly on the cornea, making sure that the tip of the tono pen is flush to the surface of the eye. That's the best way to do it. So again, you could try to do this by yourself, but in these cases where there's a ton of eyelid swelling and proptosis of the eye, it can be really difficult without an extra pair of helping hands. Now, in emergency medicine, we are sort of like MacGyvers because we never have exactly the right equipment that we need, and we're always kind of doing things under pressure. And there's a technique where we have actually used paper clips and kind of bent them so as to slide it up under the lid, the top lid and the bottom lid, and kind of open up the eye that way. Have you used this technique? Is this something that you support? Great question. So I've never used paper clips in that way, but we do have retractors that most of us carry around with us in our little ophthalmology bag. Those are called DeMar retractors. And they're kind of these little tiny baby retractors that are a much smaller version of the retractors that you saw in med school during surgery. And we can use those to pry open the lids. So for us, it's a little bit easier. We usually have somebody kind of help us hold open those retractors, and then we can get in there and check a pressure. But if you're in a setting where you might not have access to that, I think that's a great idea. Just making sure when you're using paper clips to avoid any of those sharp ends coming anywhere near the globe. We don't want to create any problems where there weren't any before. So now the patient, we've gotten a good pressure. It's above 40. We have a high suspicion for a retrobulbar hematoma. Let me ask you this. Is there any role for CT scan? Because sometimes people aren't totally sure the patient's unconscious. You're not convinced And people can be hesitant to go ahead and do a cantholysis at that point. Is there a role for CT scan or should we just go ahead and cut? What's your advice? If you consult an ophthalmology textbook, it basically tells you that retrobulbar hematomas and retrobulbar hemorrhages, those are a real clinical diagnosis. That's basically saying that there is an orbital compartment syndrome present. There can be bleeding into the orbit that does not cause the intraocular pressure to rise above 40. In those cases, it's perfectly fine to send the patient back for a CT if you have a low clinical suspicion for a compartment syndrome. But when you have the milieu of signs that we talked about, where there's a proptotic globe, where the pressure is elevated, where the eye feels very tense, those signs together are enough to diagnose a retrobulbar hemorrhage. Because it is a time-sensitive diagnosis and the treatment is time-sensitive, 
it's not recommended to send the patient back for a CT scan if you have a high clinical suspicion. In these cases, it's better to treat immediately and to get a CT afterward to confirm the diagnosis. So if I get a CT scan and it's reading a retrobulbar hematoma, that's pretty reliable. We can use that. One of the confusing things about a retrobulbar hematoma or a retrobulbar hemorrhage is the fact that you can have bleeding into the orbit without an orbital compartment syndrome. A real acutely emergent retrobulbar hemorrhage is one that does produce that orbital compartment syndrome, where there's decreased visual acuity, a high intraocular pressure. Something that I should have mentioned before is that most patients are also going to have a relative afferent pupillary defect, or an APD, when checking their pupils. So these things all combined give us evidence that there is decreased arterial perfusion of the optic nerve because of the bleeding into the bony structure, again, producing an orbital compartment syndrome. So the retrobulbar hemorrhage, which is an acute ocular emergency, is a clinical diagnosis. A bit of blood into the orbit after trauma that's not leading to any problems meaning the eye pressure is normal, the patient's vision is normal, there's no APD, those things would not lead you to treating a retrobulbar hemorrhage with a lateral canthotomy and cantholysis. So just to clarify, let's say this patient comes to us intubated, they're sedated, we can't get an exam, we don't have a tono pen, we send them to the scanner. Can a radiologist read a retrobulbar hematoma concern for compartment syndrome on a CT scan? Sure. Some things on the CT scan that would give indication that there was a compartment syndrome would be straightening of the optic nerve. The eye is designed and the orbit is designed such that that optic nerve has a little bit of an S shape to it. So there's a little bit of give of the optic nerve so that if there's a bit of bleeding into the orbital compartment, there's room for that optic nerve to proptose a bit without causing any damage. But if the CT scan shows a completely straight optic nerve, meaning that there's enough blood to push the eye outward, again, creating proptosis, which is a clinical sign, and if there's tenting of the globe, meaning there's so much pressure and so much blood in the orbital compartment that that blood is pushing the eyeball forward and stretching the optic nerve, those can be signs on a CT that there may be a retrobulbar hemorrhage and hematoma causing an orbital compartment syndrome. So basically what I'm hearing you say is if we get a CT scan and there's blood behind the eye, we should at least suspect that the patient could have a retrobulbar hematoma if we didn't already before. Now, what if we get a CT scan and it doesn't read blood behind the eye? Can we essentially rule out a retrobulbar hematoma then? That's a great question. So a retrobulbar hematoma would be likely be apparent on a CT scan, but there exists the possibility that the radiologist missed a small amount of bleeding during the CT scan. And as we know, bleeding can increase between the time of CT scan and the time of the patient arriving back to the ER bay. So if there's a small amount of blood that was missed and that bleeding continues until the patient comes back to the ER bay, then there is the possibility that an orbital compartment syndrome could come about even after the CT scan was read or was hardly noticeable during the CT scan, but has progressed to become an ocular emergency. So I can't stress enough the fact that an orbital compartment syndrome is really a clinical diagnosis. It's something that definitely requires your attention at the bedside, and it does require the ER physician to be hypervigilant 
and checking for these things to make sure that there's no damage to the globe and damage to the optic nerve. Is there any downside to go ahead and perform a lateral cantholysis, even if we're not totally sure, but we're like, this person was in trauma, they're intubated, I can't really interact with them, it looks like a pretty swollen eye, is there any downside to just going for it? The complications of a lateral canthotomy and cantholysis are very few and far between. I always tell emergency medicine physicians who are on the fence about performing this procedure that it's really low risk and that the alternative would be permanent damage to a patient's vision. So if there's a high suspicion for an orbital compartment syndrome, I think the risks are so low to this procedure that it should just be done in attempt to save the eye from any permanent damage. Complications of this procedure include iatrogenic injury to the globe or the muscles that move the eye. Patients can also have some eyelid drooping due to damage to some of the eyelid muscles, which are located superiorly. And there can be injury to the lacrimal gland or the lacrimal artery. Those also lie superiorly. I should say that most lateral canthotomies and cantholyses are done on the inferior crew or the inferior portion of the tendon that's holding the eye in place. With the inferior crew being cut, the eye is very likely to return to a normal intraocular pressure. The orbital compartment syndrome is very likely to be relieved, and there's less commonly injuries to the superiorly located arteries, glands, and vessels. Summary. So we covered a lot of information in this episode, and because of that, we're going to break it into two parts. In this first part, we really talked about what a retrobulbar hematoma is, when to suspect it, who gets it, and I'm going to give you a quick summary. But then we're going to cover part two, where we actually go into the specifics of the procedure, a lateral canthotomy, which is the procedure of choice for a retrobulbar hematoma. So a quick summary here from part one, you know, first of all, what is it? What is a retrobulbar hematoma? This is really a compartment syndrome of the eye where you end up with bleeding behind the eye. You get a lot of pressure built up because remember, the eyeball's the globe and it is stuck in this little closed compartment called the orbit that has tendons and bone around it. And so it's not a lot of space. If you have bleeding back there, you are susceptible to a compartment syndrome of the eye. This is an ophthalmologic emergency, and this is something you need to take care of quickly. You're gonna go ahead and do your lateral canthotomy and get ophthalmology on board. Now, who are the people who get this? It's usually in the setting of trauma for the most part, but you may also see people who have bleeding disorders or who on blood thitters. And what's the classic presentation? Remember, this is a clinical diagnosis. The patient should have proptosis, they may have resistance to retropulsion. So when you press on the eyelid, you actually feel sort of a rock hard eye there. The patients may have diffuse subconjunctival hemorrhage. They may have vision loss if you're lucky enough that they're awake and can engage with you. A lot of times they'll also have an afferent pupillary defect. And when you measure that intraocular pressure, it's somewhere between 35 to 40 millimeters of mercury. So very high. Can you use CT to make this diagnosis? Again, this is a clinical diagnosis but CT can help you to confirm the diagnosis. The big thing Dr. St. Peter wants us to remember is that just because you don't see bleeding on the initial CT doesn't mean that the person isn't developing a compartment syndrome of the eye. The patient may go on to have bleeding and develop that retrobulbar hematoma and compartment syndrome, so make sure that you are performing frequent rechecks on your high-risk patients. 
Finally, how are we gonna treat this? Well, that is all covered in part two, which is lateral canthotomy, the procedure, where we go through in detail how to perform the lateral canthotomy. Stay tuned. Hey everybody, we're very fortunate to have with us Megan Reck, and Megan does many things, one of which she's one of our pharmacology editors for the Corpendium textbook, but also she's the director of research and emergency medicine pharmacist at the Loyola Chicago program. So welcome, Megan. Thank you, Sean. I'm really excited to be here. Megan Reck. All right. So one of your areas of interest and expertise is anticoagulation, which I know is frustrating to a lot of us and a lot of the listeners out there. But let's start with the problem. We have a patient who comes in, and they're on a factor 10A inhibitor, and they have some sort of critical bleeding issue, either intracranial hemorrhage, retroperitoneal bleed, they need emergent surgery, something's going on, and we need to reverse them. What are the options that we have? Yeah, we really have two options right now that most centers are using. Either the trusty four-factor PCC, which we've been using since these new factor 10A inhibitors came on the market back in 2011, or the new kid on the block, Andexanet Alpha. This came out in 2018, so we have less data with it, but is also the only FDA-approved agent for reversal of factor 10A inhibitors. Yeah, I remember when the factor 10A inhibitors came out, and the thinking was, how can they make these drugs available? And we don't have a reversal agent, right? And then we had this one, and as we'll get into it, maybe things aren't as easy as we thought once this reversal agent became available. But let's back up a little bit. So let's talk about these drugs. DOAX. And this is a broad class of drugs that we call the DOAX. So these are the factor 10A inhibitors. What are they and how do they work? Then we'll get into some of the other DOAX. As the name implies, factor 10A inhibitors, they inhibit factor 10A, which is towards the end of the coagulation cascade. And Factor 10A activates thrombin, which then goes and produces that clot. So inhibiting that causes anticoagulation. And we use these most commonly for atrial fibrillation and venous thromboembolisms. There's three on the market presently, but the two that you see most commonly used are apixaban and rivaroxaban. Now, we're talking about factor 10A inhibitors. Of course, there's also direct thrombin inhibitors. And coming to a theater near you soon are going to be factor 11A inhibitors. And we'll have to bring you back to talk about those when they come on the market. But in the heat of the moment, it can be confusing. You may know that a patient's on a DOAC, but you may not know if it's a factor 10A inhibitor or a direct thrombin inhibitor. So if the name has an XABAN at the end, like apixaban or rivaroxaban, the XA is for 10A and the BAN is ban or to block. If it has a TR name in it, like the bigotran, that is a direct thrombin inhibitor. And from my understanding, these factor 11A inhibitors, when they come out, the ones that are currently being studied all have an XIAN in the name. So that might be a quick way to look at it because if you have to quickly reverse them, you want to make sure you're giving them the right reversal product. Reversal agent. Let's talk about them a little bit. Are these factor 10A inhibitors safe? Do we have to worry about bleeding and every patient on these? In general, these agents are really safe, especially when you're talking about compared to conventional anticoagulants like warfarin. 
But there's so many patients in the United States that are on factor 10 inhibitors. There's almost 3 million patients. And so in the last year, there were 84,000 of those 3 million that were hospitalized either due to a spontaneous life-threatening bleed or due to a traumatic injury when they were on a factor 10 inhibitor. So this is something that even though these agents are very safe, we're going to encounter this frequently in emergency medicine. And we're going to have to know how to approach this because we are going to see it so frequently. So how does the Andexanet work? Andexanet alpha has two mechanisms, actually. It acts as a decoy protein. So it actually binds up the factor 10 a inhibitors and just removes them from circulation so that your factor 10A can work again. And then it has a second mechanism that exhibits a pro-coagulant effect through increasing thrombin generation. So this is important because we want a reversal agent to cause hemostasis quickly, but it can also be associated with adverse effects like thrombosis. So that is a problem. That's always going to be a concern of ours. Now, four-factor PCC is 2, 7, 9, and 10. Now, that 10 in there is not activated. Is that a problem for us when we're treating these patients? No, because it's activated once it's given. So actually, it may be a benefit because we're not giving an active product like, for example, factor 7, which is activated, which may be associated with a higher rate of adverse effects. Thanks. That was my understanding, but thank you for clarifying it. Now, before we get into the doses of each, you know, I think about unfractionated heparin classically with protamine, depending on when the last time they had that dose, it, you adjust the protamine dose. It's important, correct? When the last time they ingested this medication, isn't it? Absolutely. As a pharmacist, this is one of the first things I'm trying to determine when I have a patient that presents with a life-threatening bleed with a factor 10A inhibitor on their medication list. We know that just because it's on their medication list, that doesn't mean they're taking it. It doesn't mean they're taking any of their medications. So we really need to try to be detectives about when the last dose was taken. In general, patients that took a dose within 24 to 48 hours, we should consider reversal in the setting of a life-threatening bleed. But there are also patients, for example, with renal dysfunction, acute kidney injury that may keep it on board and need reversal for up to even three days. Now, is there a way that we can do a test to see how anticoagulated these patients are similar to INR with warfarin? I have bad news, Sean. There's not a great way to do that. There is a laboratory test that we can order. You can order the heparin-specific anti-10A level. And some labs have this calibrated specifically for apixaban and rivaroxaban. It requires that you coordinate with the lab to set up a calibration. This was actually covered in a paper in EMA recently, where a study center reported on their findings of doing this. But most laboratories don't have this capability. So you can order a heparin-specific anti-10A level. And if it's elevated, it'll tell you that you have the presence of drug on board but it won't tell you the degree of anticoagulation like INR will with warfarin. That's important for everyone out there to know. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners have limited ability to do a lot of those more specialized tests. So it looks like it's going to be based on a lot of the history and the clinical concern to make that determination to use one of these reversal agents. So let's talk about how effective are these reversal agents and what are the complications of them? 
So taking Indexina Alpha, it appears to have a hemostatic efficacy that's north of 80%. The alternative is prothrombin complex concentrate, PCC. That also seems to be fairly effective with most studies reporting at least 80% efficacy. We don't have a lot of great literature with either of these agents. For indexinate alpha, we have one big study that was essentially a case series because there's no comparator group. And it was a single arm study and they used indexinate alpha in all of those patients compared to nothing. So we, we don't know how those patients would have fared with a different agent. With the PCC literature, there's no prospective studies that we have available. And so most of the retrospective literature that we have shows a hemostatic efficacy that's similar, somewhere in the ballpark of north of 80%. And then both of them carry a thromboembolic risk, don't they? Absolutely. Anytime you're inducing hemostasis, you carry the risk of causing a clot. The concerning thing with Andexina alpha, as I mentioned, its mechanism it may be more pro-coagulant. And that's what we see in the initial literature. The thromboembolic rates are somewhere around 10%. And they've been reported up to 18% of patients. So not a negligible side effect. There's actually a boxed warning for ischemic stroke, for MI, for sudden cardiac death with indexinate alpha. PCC can also cause thromboembolic events. We're giving coagulation factors. So that's certainly a concern. But the literature is somewhere around 3 to 4% of patients. Well, that's a big difference between the two. All right, this is probably a good place to review what we've discussed so far. We're talking about factor 10A inhibitors, which are most commonly going to be apixaban or rivaroxaban. Now, overall, these are very safe agents, these factor 10A inhibitors. But because there's so many patients on them, we are going to encounter life-threatening bleeds with the need for emergent reversal. Currently, there's two available, which are four-factor PCC or Andexanet. Now, the Andexanet may carry a higher risk of thrombosis, but both of them can cause thrombosis. Dosing guidelines. I know there's different dosing regimens, but just give us some kind of general dosing guidelines for each of these agents. So Andexanet Alpha is going to be dosed at either a high dose or a low dose, and it's given as a bolus followed by a two-hour long infusion. And the, determining high dose versus low dose, most patients are going to get the low dose regimen. It really has to do with whether the agent was taken within the last eight hours and what the dose of the factor 10A inhibitor is. It's all outlined in a nice table in Corpendium. PCC, on the other hand, there's a couple dosing strategies that I won't get into, but most centers are either using a fixed dose of like 2,000 units, for example, or a weight-based dose up to 5,000 units. So we recommend that you consult your pharmacist if you're fortunate enough to have one in your department or a reference because the dosing can be, it's not really complex, but you definitely want to be clear on the dosing. Now, Megan, we never want to put cost as the first issue, but Cost is an issue, and there are some cost differences between these two agents, aren't there? There are. Indexinate Alpha, when it first came out, was ridiculously expensive, up to $50,000 for a course. That initial drug company has since sold Indexinate Alpha to another company, and so the cost has come down, but it's still somewhere in the ballpark of twelve dollars to $15,000 for a course of Indexinate Alpha. Now, compared to PCC, that's somewhere in the ballpark of four dollars to $8,000. So indexinate alpha is still much more costly than what we're talking about with PCC. 
From my understanding, several of the professional organizations actually recommend Endexanet as the preferred reversal agent, including the American College of Cardiology, the American Heart Association, the American Stroke Association, and the American College of Emergency Physicians. Is that correct? Or are there nuances to this? That is correct. And there are nuances. The level of evidence that's given to all of those is slightly better for Indexinet Alpha, but still not great. And all of those guidelines also recommend that PCC can be given as an alternative to Indexinet Alpha. So the key thing is that you want to develop a policy at your institution for life-threatening bleeding or a guideline and make sure that you adhere to that guideline. So you had mentioned to me when we were talking offline that actually some institutions have both available but have more of a restricted recommendation for the indexinate. Is that correct? That's correct. And if you follow the inclusion criteria for the big study, the Inexa 4 study that they did, it actually whittles down the population that can get indexinate alpha. So this is important because, look, again, cost isn't everything, but cost is not nothing either, right? So there's a lot of institutions and even bigger ones, some of where of level one trauma centers that do not carry the indexinet. So as Megan had mentioned, and we always mention on MRAP is if you don't have a local institutional policy, develop one and follow that, right? Have every, all the parties that are involved sit at the table and develop it, work with your pharmacist, and that way everybody will be on the same page. And as the data comes, that can be Revised. So thank you again, Megan, for being here. We'll absolutely have you back because anticoagulation is always a challenge to everybody. And we really appreciate all your expertise. Thank you, Sean. Summary. Well, there you have it. For life-threatening bleeding and a patient who's on a factor 10A inhibitor, you have two choices, either Endexanet or four-factor PCC. The efficacy appears to be the same for both of them, but there may be increased risk of complications with the Endexanet. Time of ingestion is really important, so you want to be as accurate as possible. And if the patient has renal dysfunction, you might wind up giving these reversal agents further out than you would if they weren't. Of course, refer to Corpendium or another reference and ideally discuss with your pharmacist. If you don't have a guideline at your local institution, work with your pharmacist, work with your trauma surgeons, work with other partners and develop a guideline. Okay, thank you so much. And thank you again, Megan. Cardiology Corner With your host Dr. Amol Matu I figured 29 pages is probably enough to get you to, to go to bed if you're having an insomnia So, Yeah, I like these ASAP clinical policies They're not always groundbreaking but I, I think they are important to talk about and, and to know about since they largely reflect kind of the, the current state of the literature the clinical policy almost talking about is critical issues in the management of adult patients presenting to the ED with acute heart failure syndromes published in the Annals of Emergency Medicine. And it's important to note that this author group, including Amel, reviews a ton of literature scouring the data for the highest quality evidence that can be used to guide practice. And while these recommendations don't represent cutting edge care, they represent a base of practice. Finally, before we dive into the questions addressed here, Amal notes that his thoughts don't represent the writing group or ASEP, but instead are his interpretation of the data guided by his clinical practice and experience. Question one. Starting with critical question number one, which addresses the diagnostic accuracy of point-of-care lung ultrasound to direct clinical management. 
and they give a level B recommendation, basically saying that you should add point of care ultrasound to your history and physical examination to help to direct both diagnosis as well as management. Almost, it's a level B recommendation. This kind of calls back to what you just talked about. I would have given a much stronger appeal to the use of POCUS based on the literature that's out there. But why is this a level B recommendation? And what's your kind of take on this recommendation itself? So there aren't any massively large randomized prospective studies that I, I think can think of or recall that look specifically at this issue of, say, ultrasound versus chest X-ray. I think there's a bunch of pretty good studies. But with that said, I think in emergency medicine, we're all very comfortable with the idea that ultrasound is, dare I say, largely replacing the chest X-ray for the majority of patients when you want to make an accurate diagnosis. Now, part of the caveat here is that the use of ultrasound is very operator-dependent. I agree with Amal here, but he notes later on in our conversation that interpretation of chest X-rays is also user-dependent. It depends on the experience of that clinician, how comfortable they are with reading that X-ray. So the same caveat applies. And Swami, I, I know that you're a lot better and more comfortable and confident with your ultrasound skills than I am. It's still something I'm learning. And as a result, I feel oftentimes a bit more comfortable with history, physical, and chest X-ray compared to history, physical, and just ultrasound. And then the, the other thing to keep in mind always is that ultrasound can sometimes give you some false positives when patients have underlying abnormalities on x-ray, interstitial lung disease, and also during the, the COVID era, not that we're out of it, but during those times when we were seeing a lot of COVID pneumonia with this diffuse interstitial pneumonia, a lot of those patients would have the B lines as well that would kind of make you think they're in failure, but you know better because they're febrile and coughing. And so ultrasound's not perfect, chest x-ray is not perfect. What I would say is that if you're going to go with one imaging test and you're comfortable and good at it, ultrasound's better than chest x-ray. Even with a level B recommendation, I think that's enough to really push people that maybe haven't fully embraced POCUS to say, level B recommendation is pretty robust. Maybe this is something I should be adding to my armamentarium, to my diagnostic skill set. Question two. Let's move from diagnosis to some treatment issues with critical question number two. In patients with acute heart failure, is early administration of diuretics safe and effective? For the most part, the use of diuretics is safe, but they reviewed some articles which have demonstrated, and also we've seen other articles which have demonstrated that in those patients in whom you make a misdiagnosis, and this happens all the time, patient comes in with what you think is heart failure, and it turns out to be pneumonia or PE or a COPD exacerbation or something else. When you give diuretics to those patients, they have a tendency to have a worse outcome. And that makes sense. You don't want to give diuretics to patients who have an infectious disease because almost always they're dehydrated and that causes electrolyte problems and other types of uh, vascular problems. So you don't want to give diuretics to patients who turn out to not have heart failure. And the other thing that we've come to learn over the years is that a lot of patients that show up in the emergency department with acute heart failure are not actually fluid overloaded. They just have fluid in the wrong place. They've got fluid in the lungs, but they're not total body fluid overloaded. And those patients often really don't need diuretics. What they need is what I refer to as fluid redistribution. They need preload and afterload reduction. For a more in-depth discussion of this topic, check out the February 2016 MRAP, where we chat with Haney Malamut about some medical myths around diuretics. 
One of the reasons we addressed this in the clinical policy is because back in 2017, there was an article published in Journal of American College of Cardiology, which I'll call Jack, and it was published by Matsui. And the title of the article was Time to Ferrosamide Treatment and Mortality in Patients Hospitalized with Acute Heart Failure. It got a lot of press. And what they found in this article was that if patients got diuretics early, they had a better outcome. And suddenly, a lot of people everywhere were rushing to give diuretics as soon as they thought they're dealing with acute heart failure. There are some real problems with the study. It turned out that the use of furosemide was not improving their outcome, but the early use of furosemide was associated with a better outcome. And Swami, what's the first thing, or maybe what's the second thing you learned in elementary school? Correlation does not imply causality, right? Inconceivable. The first thing, of course, is never get involved in a land war in Asia. But the second thing, <laughs> <laughs> correlation does we not- We did learn that in kindergarten. It's true. Absolutely. It was the first thing they taught us when we walked in the door. My, my first grade teacher, Mrs. O'Connor, said never, ever get into a land war in Asia. Absolutely. And now we can get into addition. Yeah, absolutely. Number three, never go in against the Sicilian when death is on the line. <laughs> that's, that's another podcast, but- <laughs> What they found here was that when patients got furosemide early, it was associated with a better outcome. Now, let's take a step back from that for just a second, because critiquing this article is really important. If somebody has acute heart failure, which is clear-cut, obvious, no-brainer, and they show up in the emergency department and they get treated early, those patients tend to have a much better outcome than when patients come in with a very complicated diagnosis of acute heart failure. They've got other comorbidities. And sometimes it can take a day or two before the physicians realize that they have heart failure. Key thing here is, if somebody has a simple, uncomplicated diagnosis of acute heart failure, they have a better outcome than when patients have a very complicated diagnosis. And that's exactly what they found and showed in the study. When patients had a simple, straightforward diagnosis, they came in and they got diuretics early because the diagnosis was very obvious. And those patients are going to have a better outcome not because of the diuretics, but because they had a very straightforward diagnosis. In contrast, patients that had a very complicated diagnosis in this study ended up getting diuretics later during the court, maybe even a day or two later. Those patients are going to have a worse outcome, not because they got diuretics later, but simply because they had so many comorbidities that the diagnosis was not straightforward. So it turned out that diuretics were mostly, the early use of diuretics were mostly just associated with the simple diagnosis. They weren't causing a better outcome. And subsequent studies have come out and very clearly shown that early diuretics is not necessarily going to make the patients a whole lot better. The bottom line here is that getting diuretics on board absolutely as, as quickly as possible is not going to be associated with a better outcome or is not going to produce a better outcome than if there's a bit of a delay in the diuretics. Now, is there a benefit to delaying the use of diuretics? Well, actually there is because there's other articles that were not addressed in this clinical policy because they're smaller, but there are other articles that have suggested that if you give diuretics before the patient has gotten preload and afterload reduction, the patients can actually have a slight increase in preload and afterload, and that's not good for those patients. So when you give diuretics to patients early, it may be associated with a very slight hemodynamic detrimental effect. And then on the other hand, 
Studies have actually shown that when patients are in full-blown cardiogenic pulmonary edema, they're so clamped down, they're not actually perfusing their kidney. And so it's not until after you decrease their afterload that the diuretics actually work right away. So there's no benefit to immediate diuresis. And there's question about whether patients really need the diuretics in many cases at all, because so many patients are not fluid overloaded. So I'll tell you, Swami, what we typically do in our emergency department or in my practice is when a patient hits the door and they've got clear-cut cardiogenic pulmonary edema, I'll give them the preload and afterload reduction first and then give them the diuretic maybe about 30 minutes later. And those patients oftentimes will have already diuresed even before they get the diuretic simply because they're now perfusing their kidney well. And, you know, I really believe that those renal corpuscles have tiny little brains in them. And if the kidney knows you're fluid overloaded, they will make you diurese on their own, but you've got to perfuse them first. So throwing a lot of diuretics at these patients early, it just doesn't even get to the kidney in many patients. So just preload and afterload reduction, and then a little while later, if they're fluid overloaded, then you can go ahead and give the diuretics. I think stabilization, assess the patient, figure out whether you really think they're volume overloaded, and then you can make that decision. So it doesn't have to be the first thing you do. Question three. But that kind of brings us to question number three, which talks about one of the first things that we absolutely have to do, which is vasodilator therapy. And you alluded to this a couple of times in the last answer, but the question is phrased in patients with acute heart failure, is vasodilator therapy with high dose nitroglycerin safe and effective? Well, the the quick answer to that is yes and yes. Point of clarification here, we are specifically talking about the patient who comes in with sympathetic crashing acute pulmonary edema, the one that is sweaty, tachycardic, tachypnic, hypertensive in the 180s, 190s, or 200s, and they are looking to die right in front of you. The reason that we address this question is because there have been a number of smaller studies coming out promoting and proposing the use of very high-dose nitroglycerin either in bolus form or as IV drip form. So a lot of patients are put on low-dose nitroglycerin drips. And and in talking to a lot of people out there, it's surprising how many people get really nervous about nitroglycerin drips at 20 mics or 30 mics per minute. To put this in perspective, when you give sublingual nitroglycerin to your chest pain patient, you know, sublingual nitroglycerin every five minutes for pain, you're essentially giving that patient the equivalence of an IV nitroglycerin drip of about 60 mics per minute. And we're all comfortable giving sublingual nitro Q5 minutes. And so we should therefore also be just as comfortable giving IV nitro drips that are running at a good 60 mics per minute or higher. The fact is that most of the patients that show up with cardiogenic pulmonary edema are very hypertensive. They've got systolics of 180, 200, 220, and you've got a lot of room to work with that nitroglycerin drip. Multiple studies have come out over the years promoting nitroglycerin drips at 100, 200, even as high as 400 micrograms per minute. And what happens when you use very high nitroglycerin drips of dosages like that is you get combination of preload reduction and also afterload reduction. And that's really important to unload the heart, improve cardiac output, and improve kidney function. It improves renal perfusion. And of course, then your diuretics can actually start working. But it is very safe. These patients don't suddenly bottom out their blood pressure, but instead they just turn around very, very quickly. Recent studies have promoted the use of bolus dose nitroglycerin 
So if you don't want to use a drip, you could just give them, for example, one or two milligram bolus doses of nitroglycerin every five minutes. Now think about this for just a second. Your one sublingual nitroglycerin tablet is 400 micrograms. We're talking about one and two milligram boluses of nitroglycerin every five minutes. This works out to a nitroglycerin drip of about 400 mics per minute. The studies have shown that these patients do very well. It turns them around fast. And you know what? Using high-dose nitroglycerin drips or the bolus dosing really does appear to be safe. And for people out there that are a little bit uncomfortable with that, well, you've got some good data to back you up to show that this is safe. The caveat here, though, is, again, we're talking about patients that are hypertensive. Generally, in the study, they're looking at patients with systolics of at least 160 or so. And the great thing about nitroglycerin, as you know, is that if you ever do run into problems and the patient drops their blood pressure, let's say they turn out to not have heart failure and they're actually hypovolemic, the great thing about nitroglycerin is that if they do drop their blood pressure, you can hit the off button and it's gone within a couple of minutes. So it works very, very well. It's effective. And if you run into problems, it goes away very quickly. Since hearing you and Al Sacchetti and Scott Weingart talk about these high doses of nitro probably about a decade ago, maybe a little bit more now, it's completely changed my practice. And those patients who were coming in, they always come in about six o'clock in the morning. They just woke up. They get that little bit of some cortisol surge. They go into acute pulmonary edema. And many of these patients, we were giving these piddling doses of nitroglycerin and they would end up intubated. But since embracing these larger doses of nitroglycerin, they turn around in five, six, seven minutes. In fact, in my last shop that I worked in, our EMS folks were giving them one to two milligram boluses of nitroglycerin before they got to the hospital. They would come in with these patients. I'd be like, what do you want me to do with them? They look great. Take them home. They look fantastic. Right. And I would call the unit and they'd be like, the patient doesn't need the unit. They can go to the floor. And I couldn't really argue with them. They just needed that, that initial bolus, that drip at the high doses to really turn around. In, in addition to some uh, non-invasive ventilation, which obviously can help a lot for these patients. So using those higher doses, I think has really changed the way we manage these patients and their outcomes and how many of them do need to go to the unit as opposed to going to step down or just a telemetry bed. Question four. And that brings us to question number four, Amal, which I think a lot of people perseverate about, and that is which patients with acute heart failure exacerbations can safely be discharged home with outpatient follow-up? Because I think most of the time we do end up admitting these patients. When the literature was reviewed for this clinical policy, there really wasn't any really good risk stratification tool that worked out that said who can go home. Now, we do have a handful of risk stratification tools. Probably the best one, of course, is the one that's come from Ottawa. They, they are experts at risk stratification. But even then, the Ottawa rule, to my knowledge, uh, last I checked, it still hasn't been externally prospectively validated. And all of these stratification tools are really good at predicting which patients are at high risk and definitely should come in. But what the question really is addressing, are there any risk stratification tools which say that a patient is at sufficiently low risk of a serious adverse outcome that they can be discharged home? And the answer is really not. Even the very best one, the Ottawa rule, still when you've got the lowest score on that risk stratification tool, you still have about a 3% risk of a 14-day serious adverse event. And I don't think most people are comfortable with the 3% 14-day risk. The best thing we can say is that there just are not good enough tools that have been published yet. 
that can reliably say that this patient can go home and is going to do really, really well. So it's, it's just a, it's a tough thing to deal with trying to figure out who stays and who goes home. I don't know how you do it, Swami. What I do, I tend to be pretty conservative about admitting patients that come in with acute heart failure unless I can very clearly say that, you know what, this patient's here in heart failure simply because they ran out of their diuretic or simply because they just had a really bad diet over the past couple of days. If there's a really good reason for it, then often I'm comfortable just diuresing them and sending them home. But if it's not something simple like that, then I tend to be pretty conservative and bring them in. Day after Thanksgiving, day after Christmas, sometimes right. I can pin it on the turkey, I can pin it on the ham, and I can send them home. But I agree with you. Most of the time, I'm keeping these patients either in an OBS unit or 24-hour telemetry monitoring. I find that the places where I can get these patients home is when I give them you know, one dose of Lasix, maybe two. They feel much better. They're walking around very comfortably. And I talk to their doc, and they're like, I can see them in the next 24 hours and just make sure that they're nice and tuned up. And sometimes it's really having a system in the hospital that supports rapid follow-up of those patients to make sure that they don't kind of fall by the wayside, they don't go home and get sicker or, or have something else happen to them. I think without that kind of a system in place, it's very hard to send these patients home. Agree with that. Summary. All right, Alma, well, this clinical summary really does give us a lot of guidance. And, and I know exactly what you said up front is really important that this is not the cutting edge acute decompensated heart failure management, but this is where the evidence points us right now. It doesn't mean that there isn't emerging evidence out there. It doesn't mean that there aren't other ways to do things, but this should be kind of the base for everybody. And I think the big one that I take home from here is that if you're not using your ultrasound for your diagnosis and also to continue management, this is probably the thing that you really should be embracing, getting that skill set, adding it to your history and physical to help guide your management. And then remembering that early diuretics aren't really important. You can really wait on those until the patient has declared themselves that you know they're volume overloaded, you know they need diuresis. Otherwise, you can get into trouble here. Once you know that the patient is in acute decompensated heart failure, they have that catecholamine surge with the high blood pressure, they're sweating, they're tachycardic. Go in with the nitrates, but not at the 20 to 30 micrograms per minute. Go with the high doses hit them with a couple of boluses, start a drip at a high number. You're going to find that the patients are going to turn around quickly. They're not going to need intubation. You're going to be talking to your ICU about this critically ill patient. When they come down to see them, they're like, that patient can go to telly. They look fantastic. Nice work. And that's really what we should be aiming for. And then as far as treat and release, it's very difficult. And it's going to really be on a patient by patient basis based on what resources the patient has, as well as what resources your hospital can offer to support that patient. Thanks so much. Uh, it's always fun to talk with you, especially about a fun topic like heart failure. Never go in against a Sicilian when death is on the line. <laughs> we recently got some great questions from our listeners that are in the neurocritical care realm. And so, of course, I've got Evie Marcolini on to dive into these. Evie, welcome back to MRAP. Benvenuto, Dr. Evie Marcolini. Let's get into question number one. Question one. This is from Christine Jobert. I was recently involved in a case of a patient with a subarachnoid hemorrhage who had a notably prolonged QTC interval. The patient didn't have any history of prolonged QT, but it's my understanding that there is a correlation between subarachnoid hemorrhage and QTC prolongation in the acute phase of the disease. Here's Christine's real big question. 
can I use the traditional medications for blood pressure control that I typically reach for? She names hydralazine and labetalol there, and then goes on to say, should I consider giving the patient magnesium for that prolonged QTC? Now, Evie, I don't use hydralazine pretty much for anything anymore, but often I do reach for nicardipine or clavidipine or labetalol if I don't have any of the other drugs. Can I use the same medications to treat the elevated blood pressure and subarachnoid hemorrhage if they have a prolonged QT? There is a correlation between QTC and the severity of subarachnoid hemorrhage. There's a correlation with cardiac and catecholamine effects on the heart with all of the neurocritically ill patients that we see because there's what we think is such a catecholamine surge when these people get really critically ill. So if the severity of the subarachnoid hemorrhage is greater, then you're more likely to see things like prolonged QTC, maybe even a Takasubo. Having said all that, I can't say that it's ever really changed my choice of drugs because honestly, when we treat patients with subarachnoid hemorrhage in the ICU, we're using a lot of agents that can affect the QTC. We're keeping an eye on it. We're watching it. If it does prolong too much, we'll cut back, but it doesn't change what I use. So my answer to the question, the simple answer is use whatever you normally use. Keeping an eye on the QTC and maybe dialing it back a bit if you feel that you have to. As far as giving magnesium, not a problem, might be a good idea, but I wouldn't worry about giving the agents that typically would prolong QTC. Good to know that we can keep it kind of simple. Even if the QTC is a little prolonged, we can still reach for our typical medications for subarachnoid hemorrhage for the blood pressure, and we're just gonna keep a close eye on that QTC. I think that is probably the best way to do this. In general, we don't really pre-treat to prevent torsade, but if your QTC is pretty long, magnesium might not be such a bad thing. And, and magnesium isn't really going to do much harm in this situation. So it'd be okay to reach for a little bit of that. Question two. Evie, let's get to question number two. This is from Adam Langenbrunner. And he wrote about a case that he had where it was a 50-ish year old woman who came in with a upper and lower facial droop that started that morning. She said that she also had 10 days of right finger numbness affecting her second through fifth digits. Adam sees this peripheral facial nerve palsy and says, probably not a stroke, but I don't love the fact that she's got this other numbness that, that I, I can't really put this all together. And so he went ahead and pursued an MRI and the MRI shows an acute ischemic stroke corresponding to a very focal area of the brain affecting the facial nerve. So here's the question. How often does a seemingly peripheral facial nerve palsy end up being a stroke? And what can we do to effectively tease these apart so we're not over-activating our stroke code for every patient who comes in with a facial nerve palsy. What a tough case. And this points to the importance of the exam. And of course, if it is an isolated facial nerve palsy, you're right on and you're not going to call a stroke code. But in this case, you had a very minor deficit of the right finger numbness, the right-hand finger numbness. And it was localized to the second to the fifth fingers you showed that doing the right thing, calling neurology, getting the MRI was the right thing because that's how we found the stroke. The key is you have to trust the neuro exam and do the complete neuro exam. And you will find things and trust that exam. Overall, I think the takeaway is that it is extremely rare to have a facial nerve palsy, that's a stroke, extremely rare to the point where we're not gonna activate a stroke code if they have an isolated facial nerve palsy. The problem, Evie, is that I think we all do it. We see that and we're like, oh, that's Bell palsy, right? It's that system one thinking. That's Bell palsy. Here's some steroids on your way. 
we have to make sure to do that thorough neuro assessment. That's really the key. And Adam was bright enough not just to do the full neuro exam, but to pick up the small deficit and pursue the workup. So if they have more than one thing going on, if it's the facial nerve palsy plus some other neurologic finding, you can't just write it off as a Bell palsy. Agreed. He did a great job on this case. All right, that wraps us up for the neuro mailbag, but we know that there are more of these neuro conundrums and neuro questions out there. So keep sending them in and we'll hit up our expert and we'll get more answers on those questions. TCCC guidelines get closer and closer to being perfectly on the money the more you're dealing with the really nasty polytraumas and the more that you're dealing with really, really long transport times. And then any deviation has a lot more to do with we have the advantage of bright lights and short transport times that are not routinely seen in that setting. That is Dr. Dan McCollum, who's talking about the TCCC guidelines, tactical combat casualty care. This month, Dan sits down with Ryan Knight, who's a member of the TCCC Guideline Development Committee, to discuss a few recommendations that were recently brought up in a listener question. TCCC Tactical Combat Casualty Care Course. Let's learn first a little bit about the committee that makes the guidelines. The committee itself is made up of experts from across the entire trauma continuum in both civilian and military medicine, obviously very military heavy. However, there are civilians involved in it. And it's everything from the medic or corpsman all the way up through trauma surgeon and if need be neurosurgeons. One, there's a wealth of data and information that goes behind it. The leaders within the committee itself do a ton of work to dredge through all the studies and pull out the most pertinent ones that can be either applied or extrapolated to apply into this arena. But there is areas where there's just a hole in the evidence and we're not going to ever find it, I don't think, in some of the areas. And that's backed up by expert opinion. So let's address a few things that, that were brought up that might not be good to translate from the tactical sites that originally TCCC was focused on to civilian sites. One in particular is the use of tranexamic acid and how that ought to be administered. So when it comes to TXA, the original change came out to add TXA based on CRASH-2 as well as the MATTERS trial. Since that 2011-2012 timeframe, there's been an explosion of data in TXA. It's not just trauma, but lots of surgical subspecialties have been adding to this literature. And because of that, we felt that it was time to readdress the one gram over eight hours after the one gram over 10 minutes. That dosing that Ryan just mentioned is based on what the CRASH-2 trial used. Now, TCCC recommends that two grams of TXA is given as a bolus via slow IV or IO push. That is not how most of us give it. Why was the recommendation made? So the first point was that we had incredibly low compliance. As we looked through the, the DOD trauma registry, we were having, depending on the study, 1% to 5% compliance with giving TXA in the field. And so the question went to the medics and the corpsmen, why is that? And the response came back right away. Well, it's too burdensome. You, you try to hang a 100cc bag with an IV drip set and try to run it in over 10 minutes in this environment where it's chaotic, often at night. I've personally never had just one casualty. So you're trying to manage multiple casualties. It's just too difficult to do. And so it gets skipped. That was the initial feedback and the impetus for change. As we started to look at the data, though, it turns out that CRASH-2, that dosing protocol, is actually based on literature from 25 years ago in the cardiac surgery literature. And so CRASH had to decide on something. 
There's many different regimens for giving TXA. They decided on that one. And the question becomes, is it right? Is that the right dosing? Well, many studies, to include the MATTERS trial, looked at this in terms of bolus protocols as well as different dosages itself. So is one gram followed by one gram correct or is it a two or four or a mix per kg based dosing? It just so happens that the biggest trial picked one dosing regimen and that's what we've been using in trauma ever since. The bottom line is we have no idea what the right dose for TXA in trauma is. Being like a kind of a hardcore pragmatist, you know, I work at a level one trauma center. And so it's not that big of a problem for most of my patients for me just to do the good old school, you know, crash two style infusion, you know, the, the bolus up front and then the, the long infusion for most of my patients. Occasionally when things are, are, are getting kind of wild and we're having to rush them to the OR quickly, am I infusing it over 10 minutes? Let's just say probably not, you know, and then whether that infusion happens later or not, it's one of those things that we can work with the trauma surgeons, but we just know that we, we got to take care of the patient the best we can. Those headaches come up all the time in the pre-hospital and tactical area where it's a much bigger problem if you're at a small community shop that's not a major trauma center and you're trying to package someone up quickly and transport them to the, a bigger center. Often these infusions would be a headache. So I, I think this is highly applicable to the civilian population where as a strict evidence-based guy, if, if it's not getting in the way too much, sure, I'm going to exactly mimic what happened in Crash 2, even though I've got strong suspicions that there's nothing magic about the one protocol that they picked, but I'll, I'll stick with the biggest study and I'll just do it that way if it's not getting in the way. But even at my big level one trauma center, if it's getting in the way, I'm going to modify it and know that the important thing is probably that I'm giving TXA, not that it really matters that much about the exact pattern of the bolus or whether it's going IO versus IV. What, what are your thoughts on that, Ryan? From the pre-hospital arena, we started off, uh, the first time I hung it was in 2013 on a couple of patients and, and we put it in the 100cc bag said it that what we thought was going to be 10 minutes, I looked back and it was already in the patient. I was like, well, that just happened. <laughs> so that's the same thing that's happening to our EMS providers. You know, go ahead and try to set a drip rate in the back of a rig when you don't have a pump. The reality is it just goes in faster. And then when all chaos is going, is it okay just to draw it up in a 10cc syringe and push it slowly? And there's actually a lot of literature behind it that says that is okay. And we will put some links in the show notes to those papers if you'd like to read more about the evidence behind bolus dosing of TXA. Are there any adverse effects of bolus dosing of TXA? Why don't we do this more often? Well, if you read the package insert, it says you may observe seizures and hypotension has been observed. So we did a huge lit search on that to find out where that comes from. I even participated in calling the company and they would not cite their references at all. It's just in the package <laughs> insert. So it comes out that there's one study in 1969 that says <laughs> that healthy volunteers who received TXA felt orthostatic. And that's where we get the, you may be hypotensive. And then the seizure literature is on huge studies in the cardiac surgery literature and getting 50 mgs per kg. We're not talking about a one gram bolus anymore. And so it's just apples to oranges. Crash 2 had to pick something, and it's not necessarily correct. There's lots of dosing regimens. And so the committee then takes the evidence as well as the practice environment and puts the two together in order to come up with the best recommendations that will produce compliance, just like in your civilian practice when it starts getting crazy. This listener also brought up another potential deviation between common civilian practice and what TCCC recommends, and that's over the use of tourniquets, which is something I'm pretty passionate about. TCCC really seems to recommend pretty aggressive use of tourniquets compared to kind of the old school approach that a lot of other folks have had. 
The guidelines for massive hemorrhage state, assess for unrecognized hemorrhage and control all sources of bleeding. If not already done, use a limb tourniquet to control life-threatening external hemorrhage that is anatomically amenable to tourniquet use or for any traumatic amputation. Apply directly to the skin two to three inches above the bleeding site. If bleeding is not controlled with the first tourniquet, apply a second tourniquet side by side with the first. And so it's not using a tourniquet for all bleeding. That's not what the committee is saying. It's saying if you have life-threatening hemorrhage, put a tourniquet on it. When we take this and we go to what in the guidelines is a care under fire phase, so you're still in a threat environment and it's a little chaotic, go ahead and put it high and tight, so as proximately as possible. However, when you can assess and see where the source of bleeding is, and you have assessed that it's life-threatening, then go ahead and apply it directly to the skin two to three inches above the bleeding site. And again, that's directly from the guidelines itself. So I think that kind of dispels that myth that was in the question of using a tourniquet for any bleeding. That's not what the, the committee is saying. But then we do get in the question of, is it life-threatening hemorrhage? You ask our medics and our corpsmen who are out there doing it, and they don't have necessarily those bright white lights and uh, all the exposure in the world to tell if it's life-threatening hemorrhage. They just see a lot of blood. They're going to put it on a tourniquet, and they're going to figure that out later. If it's on for 10 minutes, we're not going to do any damage. Or sometimes just say, oh, that wasn't needed, and loosen that tourniquet. Virtually all of the mistakes that I've seen with tourniquets have been not using it when it was indicated. And there's been almost, I can't recall a single time that I saw anyone that was harmed by the use of a tourniquet that was recognized that a tourniquet was on. You know, there's obviously times where if, if someone is not properly handing off a patient and someone inadvertently leaves a tourniquet on a leg for 14 hours, you know, that, that's obviously going to be violating so many, you know, tenets of, of trauma care that it's not even funny that the patient should have been fully undressed and figured out that, yes, they have a tourniquet on their leg, and yes, it should be marked about the time and so forth. But honestly, for the time frames that are, are being dealt with in routine civilian care, you're just never going to get close to the, the time limits where a tourniquet actually plausibly could cause injury. And so I would actually lean into the question a little bit more of, of that overaggressive use of tourniquets. I'm all about it. If you're in doubt about whether this is life-threatening bleeding, go ahead, throw a tourniquet on there. And if you take it down in 10 minutes and realize, okay, this wasn't as bad as I thought, nothing bad has happened. You just got another practice with a life-saving intervention. A lot of EM providers, it's almost cultural that, that we don't lean into tourniquets as much. So right now in a lot of people's cars, you might actually have like a bunch of airway equipment, which the number of times that you're going to come across a scene on the side of the road where there was a bad car crash and you're going to take someone's airway and save a life, pretty low. But how many of you have two tourniquets in the back of your car right now? I know that I do. So I really would encourage you to buy a couple of these because they really are life-saving and something that, that should be absolutely in your wheelhouse. Our listener also had one further point that they had a bit of a disagreement with, and that was about the use of antibiotics as prophylaxis. So to read directly from the, the guidelines, it actually says, use a combat wound pill pack, which has 400 milligrams of moxifloxacin as the antibiotic that's in the combat wound pill pack. And it says it's recommended for all open wounds, but if they're unable to take PO meds, then move to ertapenem. It's one gram for ertapenem. So the question then comes, where did this arise from? When you looked at the early studies coming out of Operation Enduring Freedom and Operation Iraqi Freedom, and the fourth leading cause of death remained infectious, uh, and sepsis was the reason for it. And so then we started looking at other reasons. And there's significant morbidity with multidrug-resistant organisms. All these extremity wounds, not all of them, but upwards of 15% are, are getting osteomyelitis. 
And if you think about the high energy from these uh, wounding mechanisms, it's just driving dirt and debris into the wounds. What they found was that early antibiotics were associated with reduced infectious complications out of these wartime injuries. And that, that was published in the Journal of Trauma in 2008, and then also relooked in 2011 and, and republished. And so from there, it becomes a logistics question, just like the TXA. What antibiotic can we carry that's relatively shelf-stable, that can be in the temperature ranges that we're talking about, and is somewhat easy for a medic or corpsman to give pre-hospitally, because that's what we were showing, is that pre-hospital antibiotics were possibly making a difference. This is another area where the committee is taking a look. In fact, currently, this is one of the, the ones under consideration right now for revision. And we, as a committee, are asking, do we have this right? We don't know the answer to that question. So uh, I'll just throw that out, quite frankly. And I think this is a really fascinating area about looking at the pre-hospital administration of medications in general. It can be really difficult in civilian transports with, with short transport times to show that any medication given if you're, if you're 10 minutes away, there's not that many medicines that would actually meet the, the bar of evidence that says that it clearly has better patient-oriented outcomes by giving it before you get there. And so this is a little bit more challenging to extrapolate to the shorter transport times that for most, but not all listeners, will have in their civilian practice. But I, I would still say that the nastier the trauma, the more likely that these antibiotics are a benefit. And sure, because of logistics reasons, do I use a cephalosporin like cefazolin much more frequently for a lot of, of my bad traumas? Sure. And, and does it not matter at all if you don't have any concern for an osteo or something like that? Likely. You know, it's one of those things that I think definitely would have a little bit of difference between TCCC and typical civilian practice. One of the uh, people that taught me during residency said that everyone gets a dose of antibiotics before they die. And I think that there is some wisdom there of the sicker you are, the more likely that the risk to benefit of antibiotics is going to, to benefit you, even if it's not obvious what's happening. You know, the really, really bad polytrauma with lots and lots of potential infectious sources, the needle might point more towards liberal use of antibiotics. And for that much more minor trauma, which TCCC is a lot less focused on, you know, a lot of things that get called out as trauma activations in the civilian world are really minimally traumatic if you really get down to it. In which case, you know, a lot of the, the aggressive use of antibiotics is more likely to have problems. And I think that the question of should we apply this evidence basis to one area to another is very fundamental to evidence-based medicine, where, for example, I'm a huge advocate of ECMO and eCPR. I think that this is going to be something that's going to be a huge part of how we take care of cardiac arrest in the future of emergency medicine. However, I got to say, it's, it's a big difference between applying it to the handful of places in the world that have legitimate eCPR programs and saying, hey, is every community ER going to have an ECMO program? And the answer for at least the next few decades is clearly no. Like we would probably hurt a lot of people by trying to put people on ECMO pumps at shops that might have one patient every two years that would qualify. And so I think that the, the concerns that this listener brought up of like, are we applying this to the right people? are valid. TCCC guidelines get closer and closer to being perfectly on the money the more you're dealing with the really nasty polytraumas and the more that you're dealing with really, really long transport times. And then any deviation has a lot more to do with, we have the advantage of bright lights and short transport times that are not routinely seen in that setting. Your clinical judgment still matters, so you don't necessarily have to take the recommendations and follow them to a T in your practice environment based on what you're seeing in the patient in front of you. When we extend that or when the stress level goes up and you're, you're running your fourth trauma out of the hallway, 
maybe it's a time to just fall back on the guidelines because your brain isn't quite there with each individual patient that you're dealing with simultaneously. And this will keep you very, very safe and, and within that spectrum. Summary. Well, I love the uh, point that you make that, you know, these algorithms and, and guidelines that we have, be it, you know, ACLS or ATLS or any number of things, it's kind of a starting basis. And, and the way that those are, are generally built is, is the idea that, you know, if you're frazzled and you're just like, oh, wow, there's so much happening right now, you can fall back to those core things and, and the guidelines will generally improve your care. And it's also invaluable if you're new to emergency medicine or you don't see a lot of this type of patient then it really is a smart thing just to rely on the guidelines and just follow them as close as possible. But as you get more expertise and as your practice environment changes a little bit, that's when you might audible out of it and say, I know that the guidelines say this, but this is when I'm choosing to violate it because of this. You just hit a very important point. And it's one of my old bosses used to say all the time. He's like, Ryan, let me know what rule I'm about to break. You have to read the guidelines. You have to read the evidence that goes behind it and the reasons behind it in order to violate it. If you're just violating it out of ignorance, I think you're in an evidence-free zone at that point. Agreed. And I'm a little bit infamous at my program for needling and, and jostling against the guidelines and saying, oh, that evidence for that's so weak. We're just rampantly ignoring that particular piece of ACLS or whatever. And that, that can only get you so far, to be quite honest, even though I love doing it. And so as long as you're aware of the evidence, I'm actually really impressed with this, how hard it is to study incredibly injured, you know, like really bad traumas, how hard it is to get evidence for this. After a discussion with you, I'm really impressed with how good the evidence is. This really is as good as you could hope for, as difficult it is to study. Ryan, thank you. And to the listener, thank you for your questions. Triple C Tactical Combat Casualty Care Course. It is a gamble we all take, but it's a gamble we all occasionally lose. We don't love having end-of-life conversations in the emergency department. They can be uncomfortable. They often take time that it feels like we don't have. They don't feel like our responsibility when the patient has a primary physician or an admitting team. So we routinely gamble in admitting patients without having that conversation. And most of the time, we get away with it. But let's consider a brief story. Let's consider what happens when we lose this gamble. Justin Morgenstern. Code blue, emergency department, bed 15. Code blue, emergency department, bed 15. Code blue, emergency department, bed 15. Your heart drops. That's your patient. You put the request in for an admission five hours ago now, but it's busy as always. So she still hasn't been seen. She is your responsibility. It's an elderly patient from a nursing home. She has advanced dementia with complete dependence for all of her activities of daily living. She's close to bed bound. She has multiple comorbidities. You don't say it out loud, but her current quality of life is sort of depressing to you. You never want to end like that, and you sort of sense in moments of semi-lucidity that the patient probably feels the same way. She was supposed to be admitted for delirium. She didn't look that sick. Her vital signs were normal. Her blood work was unremarkable. Despite your best instincts, you decided to blame it on a UTI. Of course, you wouldn't be that surprised if she died within the year. But honestly, you didn't expect for it to happen today. But it did happen. And it's your responsibility. You know that the patient won't benefit from CPR, or intubation, or the ICU. You wouldn't want that for yourself. Patients with her baseline condition tell you they don't want CPR, 
when you take the time to have the conversation. But you didn't take the time. Faced with a busy emergency department, you skipped the conversation as you often do. The family wasn't at the bedside. You weren't sure who the legal power of attorney was. The nursing home should have done it. There were so many justifications, excuses, but none of that helps you now. She is your responsibility and the code has already started. CPR is in progress as you walk into the room. Family is not around, it's now 2 a.m. You're gonna have to wake them up. This would have been a much easier conversation five hours ago. This would have been much easier if you didn't have to start the conversation with, your mother has died. You look around the room as you dial the phone. Your colleagues are professional. They move through the resuscitation with a practice grace, but there is sadness in the room. Despite the heroic expertise, nobody is proud. Nobody is hopeful. Nobody is happy. Everybody knows where this is headed. There is profound moral distress, and that too is your responsibility. Death occurs despite all of the efforts as it was destined to do. It was only delayed by 30 minutes, but those 30 minutes were profound, profoundly harmful, profoundly sad. This is a gamble that we all take. We avoid the uncomfortable conversation, defer it to the admitting team, and it is a decision that is easy to justify. The patient is stable, the conversation is not urgent, and there are always 20 other things that need to get done. So we gamble and we usually win. But when we lose, we lose big. The result is moral injury, distress, burnout. We feel awful about the part of our job that should make us feel the best. We have the ability to bring people back from the dead. Our jobs are miraculous. We can occasionally be heroic. But too often we practice those skills in futile situations, on patients who would not appreciate our efforts. And so, instead of heroism, we feel shame. We question our commitment to this profession. We question everything. Of course, we are not the main characters here. Let's not overlook the impact on the patient and her family. The loss of dignity, the lack of respect, the family forced to make impossible decisions at impossible times. Decisions that will live with them forever while we are forced to move on to the next patient. It is a bet that every single one of us has made. Clearly, it is a bet that I have made and that I regret. But I think if we pause to consider the potential losses, we will realize that this is a bet that just isn't worth it. It is impossible to do everything for every patient in the emergency department. I reflect on this story not to kick myself or to blame anyone else who has made this same mistake. I reflect on this story as a reminder of the importance of my job, a reminder of why I got into medicine, a reminder of the value and the personhood of the patient in front of me. I reflect on this story very often as I try to get better at what I do. everybody, Jesse Warner here, and I'm back with Dr. Deidre St. Peter. We first told you about retrobulbar hematomas. What are they? Who gets them? What's the presentation? How do we make that diagnosis? 
Now we're diving into part two, which is the actual procedure, that lateral canthotomy, that vision-saving procedure that we're going to perform if someone does indeed have a compartment syndrome of the eye. Let's get into it. Part two. Okay, Deidre. So my patient comes in, they have signs of a retrobulbar hematoma. What do I do next? I've already taken the tono pen if I have it, and I've noted that they have an elevated intraocular pressure. Perhaps I've gotten a CT scan. I'm ready now to try and fix the situation. Walk me through my next steps. All right. So you've established an orbital compartment syndrome, and you're ready to perform the lateral canthotomy and cantholysis. Most supplies are going to be really readily available for you as an emergency medicine physician. The first thing that you're going to need is a topical anesthetic. This could be proparacaine or tetracaine, whatever is readily available to you for an eye examination. The next thing you'll need is a local anesthetic. I like to recommend either lidocaine 1 or 2% with epinephrine. You're going to need a syringe, a 20-gauge needle or a 19-gauge needle to draw up the anesthetic, and then a 27-gauge or a 30-gauge needle to inject. You'll also need a surgical drape. The next thing I would recommend is getting a topical antiseptic. In ophthalmic procedures, we typically use povidine iodine, which is betadine. It should be readily available in most emergency departments. Unfortunately, it comes in a 10% solution, and this needs to be diluted down to 5% so that it can be used on the eyeball. 10% solutions are just too harsh for the globe, so we would recommend that if you only have 10% solutions available, mix it one-to-one with balanced salt solution or with sterile water just to dilute it enough to be safe for use around the eye. You could also grab surgical loops if you have them, although those won't be completely necessary. They might just make it easier. I would also grab sterile gauze. And then the tools you'll need include scissors. These can be any blunt tipped scissor. We like to recommend Stevens or Westcott scissors. Those are ophthalmic scissors, but anything blunt tipped would be fine. The reason why we recommend blunt tipped is just so that you have less of a chance of poking the eye, creating any iatrogenic injuries. And the last thing you'll need is a pair of hemostats. Most people use these hemostats to clamp the lateral aspect of the eyelid in preparation for the cantholysis and canthotomy. It kind of crushes the tissue, gives you a landmark for where you should be cutting with those blunt-tipped scissors. And another thing you'll need is a pair of forceps. These should have a tooth on them, and that tooth should be bigger than about a 0.3. So anything larger than a 0.3 is going to be fine. You just want to have a good tooth on there to get a good grip on the eyelid. You'll be using it to help expose the tendon that needs to be cut. All right, so we've gone through the supplies. Now what do we do, Deidre? So the first thing I'd like to do to make the patient more comfortable is to inject that local anesthetic, that lidocaine 2% with epinephrine, with focus on the lateral canthal area, just making sure that we're getting good anesthesia. In patients who have a lot of edema or swelling around the eyelids, it may still be painful for them. You can consider giving them a little bit of sedation to help them be more comfortable during this emergent procedure as well. So we're aiming the needle just lateral to the corner of the eye where the skin is, just over the edge of the bone there, and doing some sub-Q injection of the lidocaine. Is that true? Yes, just anesthetizing that lateral canthal area right over the orbital bone, just making sure that the patient is as comfortable as they can be. The next thing is to place that hemostat 
on the lateral portion of the eyelid. So basically clamping between the corner of the eyelid and the orbital bone. Getting a one to two centimeter bite of that lateral canthal tissue will help to crush the tissue and give you a nice path for where your initial incision should be. I like to tell people to clamp one centimeter of that lateral canthal area for one minute to allow enough time for that tissue to be crushed. What are we trying to do with the crushing? We're just, is that causing hemostasis? Yes. So it causes hemostasis. It kind of moves some of the soft tissue out of the way so that the incision with the scissors is a bit easier and more reliable. What's next? The next part is the actual canthotomy and cantholysis. When we say canthotomy, we're talking about just cutting the skin of the lateral canthal area. So basically cutting along where that hemostat was resting. That is not enough to alleviate the orbital compartment syndrome. The next step is the most important, and that's the cantholysis, the lysing of the tendon that's holding the globe in place. So again, a pair of blunt-tipped scissors is used to perform the canthotomy, cutting along horizontally at the lateral canthus toward the orbital bone. And the next step is the cantholysis. After the initial canthotomy has been made, the next step is to take the toothed forcep and displace the lower eyelid inferiorly to try to expose the inferior crew of the lateral canthal tendon, which will be what we're cutting in the canthotomy. To find this lateral canthal tendon, the inferior portion of it, you should take your scissors and kind of strum along the orbital bone. When you strum along that orbital bone on the inferior portion there, you will likely feel what, what feels like guitar strings is what most people say. It kind of feels like there's a strumming on something that's really taut there. And that taut area is the inferior crew of the lateral canthal tendon. Once you strum along that area and feel those what we call guitar strings, then you know you're in the right spot and you know that that's what you need to cut. So then you use your scissors and try your best to cut and release that lateral canthal tendon. It's going to feel pretty resistant to your snip because it's a really hard tendon. And so it might take a few tries to release that lateral canthal tendon, but once you do, it should be fairly evident. You should see the eyeball displace inferiorly and laterally toward your cut, and the pressure should come down in the eye within the first 10 to 15 minutes after performing the procedure. And the reason we cut the inferior crew before the superior crew is because there's a lot of delicate structures superiorly. Most studies find that just releasing the inferior crew does plenty to release that orbital compartment syndrome. If you're completely sure that you've cut the inferior crew of the lateral canthal tendon and you're still not seeing the resolution of the orbital compartment syndrome that you'd like, then you can redirect your scissors superiorly, strum along on the superior margin of that lateral canthal area, again, looking for the superior crew of that tendon. You can release that and once the inferior and superior crews have been released, there's nothing more to do. You've completed a full canthotomy and there should be resolution of the orbital compartment syndrome, assuming that you've performed the canthotomy completely. Okay. And just a reminder, when you're doing this procedure, you want to position yourself at the head of the bed. That's the ideal location to perform this. 
what are the structures that we need to watch out for, Deidre? Obviously, we don't want to hit the globe, so be really careful about that. Are there other things we need to really watch out for when we're trying to cut the crew? So the most important thing is always the globe, making sure that you are not pointing any scissors directly toward the globe at any time. And really, the tips of the scissors should always be directed toward the orbital bone and not toward the eyeball itself. So they should always be facing kind of away from the eyeball. The eye has muscles on it. So if you do get your scissors or sharp instruments close to the eyeball, then there's also the risk of not only hurting the globe, but hurting the muscles that are moving our eyes around at the same time. In terms of other structures to be wary of, Again, the main structures that are susceptible to damage that are in the orbit are going to be on the superior portion. And as I mentioned before, most orbital compartment syndromes can be completely relieved by lysing the inferior crew of the lateral canthal tendon, so directing most of our instruments downward. In these cases, you can really look around quite a bit for the inferior crew of that lateral canthal tendon without damaging much. Again, that's part of the reason why it's better to perform the procedure if you think that there is an orbital compartment syndrome rather than to wait. There's not a ton of structures that are susceptible to damage if you're positioning your tools appropriately. So we've gone ahead, we've done our lateral canthotomy, we have done our cantholysis. Now what? Most textbooks are going to tell you to wait a half an hour and reassess to see if the intraocular pressure has resolved, to check the vision again, to look for an APD. In my personal experience, the intraocular pressure should come down within five minutes. So I've done a lateral canthotomy, checked again right after I made the SNP, and it was the pressure was 18 after being 55. So in most cases, it's going to be pretty apparent that the globe is going to feel softer. It's not going to feel rock hard anymore. There should be displacement of the globe when you've cut the tendons to allow the globe to kind of move where there's less restriction. And things you're going to want to do, call ophthalmology to have them come in to make sure that they can assess the eye and get the patient proper follow-up. In most cases, the ophthalmologist is going to want to check this patient very closely over the next 12 to 24 hours, making sure that there's no recurrence of this retrobulbar hemorrhage and compartment syndrome making sure that the cantholysis was done completely, just making sure that the patient is safe. If someone is out in the community, let's say they're very far from an area where there's any ophthalmologist, they've gone ahead and performed this procedure, they feel pretty good about it, do you need to transfer that patient? I would. We've received plenty of calls from emergency medicine physicians who have completed lateral canthotomies and then transferred the patient. It's always good to get the patient assessed ASAP by an ophthalmologist get a baseline exam of the optic nerve, make sure that the pressure is handled appropriately, and make sure that the patient can get proper follow-up over the next 12 to 24 hours. Okay. And will the APD resolve after we do this procedure correctly? In many cases, it will. I had a patient who had a retrobulbar hematoma, had the lateral canthotomy and cantholysis, and afterward recovered vision to 2020. An APD is a sign of optic nerve dysfunction. So if we've completely prevented any sort of optic nerve damage, then hopefully the APD will resolve. Do we need to stitch these up? The answer is no, but I just want to hear it from the ophthalmologist. No, great question. So no, there's no need to stitch these up. After you've completed the canthotomy and cantholysis, it's never a bad idea to put a little ophthalmic 
ointment over the cut area, but the patient should not need a reconstruction in any way. There are certain cases where patients will need a few stitches later on, but this can be done on an outpatient setting one to two weeks after the lateral canthotomy and cantholysis. Any special instructions for our patients? Most patients will need to monitor their visual acuity over the next 12 to 24 hours. In many cases, the ophthalmologist will opt to keep these patients overnight, reassess, make sure that the vision is improving, if not staying stable, and make sure that the intraocular pressure is remaining stable. They'll give the patient instructions for monitoring their monocular visual acuity, meaning checking the visual acuity out of the affected eye themselves at home once they've been stabilized and cleared. Summary. So let's review this, Deidre. We've got a patient who's come in, usually in the setting of trauma. Maybe they have a bleeding disorder. They have a proptotic eye. They may have an afferent pupillary defect. They have high pressure on my tonopen exam. Maybe we get a CT scan and see bleeding behind the eye. We have a high suspicion that they have a retrobulbar hematoma. We have 90 minutes to perform a lateral canthotomy and cantholysis. We're going to place our hemostats after applying a little bit of numbing medicine, some lidocaine. We're going to hold them on there for about a minute, perform a lateral canthotomy, find the inferior crew with our blunt-tipped scissors, cut that inferior crew, release the compartment pressure, and essentially we're done. Maybe a little bacitracin ointment, but nothing else other than ophthalmology follow-up. Correct? Correct. Another thing that I should mention is if these patients are on high-dose aspirin, Eliquis, any sort of anticoagulation, to consider holding that to prevent any sort of recurrence of bleeding. Beautiful. And of course, we will make that decision on a case-by-case basis. Well, thank you so much, Deidre. This is an excellent review of retrobulbar hematoma, our third ocular emergency. And I look forward to talking to you again. Thank you so much for having me and great questions, Jesse. It was good to see you again. And for anyone who's interested in seeing a video on how to perform a lateral canthotomy and cantholysis, check out MRAP HD. Jessica Mason has an excellent video on there for you to view. Okay, friends, let's get right into Ultra Ultra this month with a really important abstract number one. Abstract one. This was in the New England Journal. You've probably already heard about it. It's the defibrillation strategies for refractory VF trial. Now, we covered this also in the MRAP snack in February, and I highly encourage you to listen to that and Sanjay and Mike's full commentary in EMA because there's a lot of details about this paper that are kind of important. But here's the gist. You have out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, and standard pad placement is anterolateral, and we give shocks in that manner. These authors did a randomized crossover trial looking at that standard care for shocks versus subsequent shocks of two different flavors, dual sequential defibrillation or vector change. Now, what they did is they had all patients get three initial shocks in the standard anterolateral positioning of the pads, as well as ACLS protocols. And then the dual sequential group, they got dual sequential shocks after those three initial shocks. So that is where they have the standard anterolateral pads on as well as anterior posterior pads on. And they are given two sequential shocks one second apart. So that was group number two. 
Group number three, again, had the standard three shocks initially in the anterior lateral positioning. And then if they were still in cardiac arrest after that time, then they switched the vector. This is the vector change group and put the pads on in a different position, generally the anterior posterior positioning. Now, the reported numbers of this study were very positive that the dual sequential group and the vector change group had higher survival to hospital discharge, higher termination of VF, and in the dual sequential group, statistically significant higher rates of ROSC as well as survival with a good neurological outcome. But as Sanjay describes in great eloquent detail in the full EMA, there are quite a few limitations to this study that we need to know about including sample size and protocol violations, but I think we can still take away from this study that if someone is continuing to be in cardiac arrest after three shocks in the standard position, we should probably try something else. And we would urge you to try either dual sequential defibrillation or vector change. Abstract two. Abstract two that they did was extracorporeal membrane oxygenation in the therapy of cardiogenic shock, results of the ECMO-CS randomized trial. It was in circulation in November of 2022, and here was the idea. You had cardiogenic shock, you're as sick as poopy, and you either get VA ECMO or you don't, and how did you do? And they couldn't really find a big difference between the two groups. But as Mike points out, there is one gigantic, huge, bunt cakey and large problem with the study, and that is in the usual therapy group, you got to have ECMO if you were really sick, and guess what? 40% of the time, the people crossed over to the ECMO group. So it was very much a study of ECMO versus ECMO. So you can't really tell if the intervention you know, improves thing if both people get the intervention. So it's a bit of a problem. But mostly this is a reminder, as Mike tells us, that there is three, at least three large ECMO studies that are coming. We're looking forward to the results. It is not a slam dunk that ECMO works, and it's not clear in which groups we should be spending the time, money, cash, uh, sadness on ECMO. So we've sort of instituted this therapy before we had really good studies, which often happens. But I'm sure that ECMO has a real good utility in the right place. We're still waiting to hear from whence it should come. But don't look at this study and say, well, ECMO didn't work because of this huge crossover problem. The future of ECMO is amazing. Abstract four. I got excited about number four because when I was a young boy, when I was smaller, when I wasn't as big as I am now, when I was, uh, you know, a youth, I used to give the uh, calcium before I gave the verapamil for rapid AFib. But it wasn't clear whether you needed to do that with diltiazem. And so this is a little study that in theory said, if you give diltiazem and you give calcium, will that reduce the hypotension? The idea being that the diltiazem will still work at the AV node, but the calcium will stop the effects in the periphery, and so you'll stop the vasodilation. This was not a very well done study. Unfortunately, it wasn't really a study. It was retrospective, so you can't really tell. There wasn't a big difference between the two groups, and uh, so we don't know. So if you like to give a little calcium before your diltiazem, you can, this says that's fine. And if you don't, this says you can, it's fine. It's not actually information, which is upsetting to me as a human being. It's just so not good. Maybe somebody will do a randomized trial and we'll know. Abstract five. Okie dokie, let's do abstract number five. The use of dexmedetomidine in the emergency department, a systematic review. This is from Academic Emergency Medicine. So dexmedetomidine, have you heard about it? I've heard about it a lot, but sadly have not been able to use it in my ED, probably because there's not a lot of evidence. So this was a systematic review and notably not a meta-analysis because, again, the evidence is weak in the emergency department and has uh, a lot of heterogeneity. But it's a really good read, well-done discussion, and there's actually quite a bit of uses for DEX that I wasn't aware of. 
You can use it for procedural sedation, sedation of agitated non-intubated patients, and facilitation of radiologic imaging using either intranasal or sublingual decks, which is super interesting and I had no idea. So the authors go through 35 different studies of ED use of DECs, and essentially the uh, takeaway points is that, again, at this point in time, the evidence is weak. So all you smart folks out there, maybe do some studies looking at DECs use in the ED because there are a lot of indications, and if we had stronger evidence, we probably would use it more. And I definitely have taken away interest in potentially using intranasal use of this or sublingual. So dexmedetomidine may be coming to an ED near you with better evidence. Abstract 6. Abstract 6 was an interesting little paper, and it is outcomes in ED patients with non-specific EKG changes and low high sensitivity troponin, the Journal of the American College of Emergency Physicians. So this was an article which basically sliced and diced a big sort of data set on troponins by Siemens. You know, they're just introducing their new high sensitivity troponin. So they did some big studies. And this study was asking the question, well, it was a number of questions, but what is the utility of an EKG in addition to a negative troponin? So Mike goes through how they did this, but if basically you slice and dice, they say something to the effect of, if you've got a non-specific EKG and a negative high sensitivity troponin, you've got a chance of a MACE of about 4%, about 1 in 20. Now, none of these people went home and dropped dead, but ultimately, you know, they're working them up for chest pain, so they ultimately needed to have some sort of form of, uh, you know, revascularization or something like that. And if you had non-specific EKG changes, it was about the same. It was actually a little lower, 3%, but you know, it's basically the same. So they're saying like, maybe if you've got a high sensitivity troponin, you don't actually need an EKG. And I think that that is an enormously large step that you need to be careful of. Because non-specific EKG changes are quite variable from just, you got a little flat T waves. And in this article, they had some people with ST segment depression. Now, ST segment depression is not the same as ST segment depression is not the same as ST segment depression. So you've got to be very careful when people talk about non-specific EKG changes and the use of a high sensitivity troponin. It's so good that you don't even need to look at the EKG. You still need to look at the EKG. Until we have a massive data set that says exactly which EKG things we can ignore in the face of a high sensitivity troponin that is negative then I would be very concerned about sending people home who have things like ST segment depression and they came in with chest pain, but their low sensitivity, the troponin is negative. You've got to be a bit careful about that. There's a number of different subgroups. I think this is really good when you've got a low risk clinically and you've got a low risk EKG and you've got a low risk troponin. Okay, they're probably pretty low risk. But the mixing up of those uh, various groups into moderate to high and then you're just saying, oh, troponin wins them all. Got to be a bit careful, mate. Crikey. Abstract eight. Abstract number eight is about blood pressure control in stroke. This is a super important topic, super important paper that was published in The Lancet, and this is the Enchanted 2 trial. How does she know? Right, that's enough of that. So blood pressure control in stroke is an important topic because in acute ischemic stroke, we do want to get the blood pressure down a little bit, but not too much because multiple studies have shown that in acute ischemic stroke, if the blood pressure goes down too far, patients have poorer outcomes. So this trial specifically was looking at the endovascular thrombectomy group. So these are patients who had successful endovascular therapy for an acute stroke. And the theory was, well, maybe this group will be different because they've had endovascular therapy, they've had their arteries opened up. So maybe a more normal target of less than 120 millimeters of mercury would be preferable for this group. 
So this was done in China, multi-center randomized controlled trial. They enrolled a lot of patients during COVID times, 820 patients, and they had two targets, either a blood pressure after thrombectomy of less than 120 millimeters of mercury, so normalized, or a blood pressure target of 140 to 180 millimeters of mercury. And not surprisingly, the blood pressure group of less than 120 did poorer and quite a bit poorer. There actually was a number needed to harm in that group of seven. So the bottom line is, as Mike says, don't do this. Don't try to get the blood pressure normalized after regular ischemic stroke or endovascular thrombectomy for ischemic stroke. More important to maintain a blood pressure of 140 to 180 millimeters of mercury. Abstract 11. Abstract number 11 is about TXA, one of our favorite things. Transamic acid? Transamic trans? Forget it. We've talked about TXA a lot recently for many different things. Swami did a review of this in April 2021, going over multiple aspects of TXA use. And this paper is focusing on nebulized versus IV TXA for hemoptysis. So this is particular to hemoptysis. Now, this trial was done in India where they see a lot of TB. So this may have some lack of generalizability for many of our centers, but they did randomize 100 patients with stable hemoptysis. So these were not patients who were super, super sick in the ICU. And they randomized these 100 patients to either receiving nebulized TXA three times a day or IV TXA three times a day. And guess what? The nebulized group did better. So they had better stopping of bleeding at 30 minutes, and they also actually had other outcomes that were better. They had less admissions, they had less need for intervention, such as interventional radiology. And so really interesting here, if you have not tried nebulized TXA, it's something to think about. This is particularly for hemoptysis, but I've used it in a post-tonsillectomy hemorrhage with really good results after hearing from Eileen Claudius about this in a segment in June of 2018. So think about it. Nebulized TXA seems to work better than IV TXA for hemoptysis. Abstract 14. Abstract number 14 was entitled Covered or Uncovered, a randomized controlled trial of tegaderm versus no tegaderm for ocular ultrasound. And that is the question. Should we use tegaderm or not use tegaderm when trying to obtain adequate pocus images of the eye? So these authors challenged this dogma that we always use tegaderm when we do ocular ultrasound, as there's no real evidence for or not this practice. And they uh, basically took 90 patients, and these patients had either an eye complaint or a headache, and they randomized them to themselves. So one eye was given tegaderm and then ultrasound gel, and the other eye, no tegaderm and ultrasound gel. So you were your own control. And they were looking mainly at the image quality. And not surprisingly, the image quality without tegaderm was way better. Actually, one point better on a five-point Likert scale. So without tegaderm, definitely better images. They also asked the patients if they had discomfort, and the discomfort was not different and very, very minimal. Patients did slightly prefer having tegaderm. I can see why. I guess having your eye covered with something before gel might be a little bit preferable, but... The gist is, if you want good images, opt for no tegaderm when doing ocular ultrasound. Abstract 19. Abstract number 19 was about drugs and dogs. This is a super interesting research letter 
that was published in JAMA Internal Medicine entitled Price Comparison of Human and Veterinary Formulations of Common Medications. So I found this completely fascinating. So the researchers wanted to identify if the same drug was more expensive when you purchased it for a dog or for a human. So they took 120 common medications and compared the cost at GoodRx and Costco for the human versions of the drugs versus the pet pharmacy, which they used was Chewy.com. And not surprisingly, they found that most of the time, the same drug was much more expensive for humans. And the GoodRx to pet pricing ratio was 5.5 times on average more cost. So it's a really interesting look at just one of the problems in healthcare, which is the lack of transparency in pricing for common medications and drugs. And so Sanjay makes a good point that comparison shopping is really important because you might be able to find a different price for a human drug based on your zip code or what pharmacy you're using, but it also may be widely different based on if you are a human or a dog. That's all we've got time for. Can I say this? I don't think I've said this before. Crikey. Crikey. They're going to get this sensation like they need to go poo, they'll be a bit vagal, or maybe they've got to go wheeze because they're so excited to see you a literature legend. Crikey. Now, if you want to have this effect on people, you should listen to EMA multiple times a month so that you can be a literature legend, giving people sort of that vagal sensation that maybe they need to go poo their pants. Now, if that's what you want to be, listen multiple times a month. Crikey. Crikey. I know it's a bit absurd. Poo their pants. But it's real. It's real. It's real. It's real. Giving people sort of that vagal sensation that maybe they need to go be a literature legend. Crikey, it's real. It's real. Mail call. Well, welcome to this month's mailbag. As always, we've got some great content here for you. We are coming to you from the home office in Mora, Minnesota. It's a little cold here in Mora, but you know, it's pretty beautiful. A 20 minute drive off of I 35. That's Mora. Oh, yeah, that's Minnesota. It is absolutely stunningly beautiful for the six weeks that they don't call winter. But otherwise, uh, people who like the snow, Mora, Minnesota, that's the place to be. Letter one. And Jen, we got a really interesting question from a listener revolving around the idea of if you had a patient who you know has an ST elevation MI, EMS calls you and goes, we're bringing a STEMI to you. We're going to be there in 10 minutes. And then the patient arrests when they get to you. Should you be giving them thrombolytics intra arrest? And specifically, they asked the question about TNK. And so we threw this over to Scott Weingart. Here's what Weingart's got to say on the topic. Scott Weingart. Absolutely. In my practice, the answer would be yes. And the way I approach this is I don't like giving thrombolysis during cardiac arrest for undifferentiated situations. And, you know, people will just struggle to find like vague reasons like, oh, he's 55 and he's male and hypertension. There can't be anything else except STEMI. No, no, there can be other things except STEMI. But if you actually know the diagnosis beforehand, like in this case, a STEMI or Oftentimes in the ED, you'll have a patient with a submassive pulmonary embolism who codes. In both those circumstances, yes, I personally would give thrombolytics immediately. Maybe I'd try to shock them once or twice as we're getting the med prepared. But after that, I'd certainly give thrombolytics with a few provisos. One, if you're an ECMO center and the ECMO could be mobilized quickly, then that might be the better win than thrombolysis. Or if you have a place, and these are incredibly rare, that will take a patient to the cath lab on mechanical CPR, which is possible. It's doable. It's the, the Lucas devices especially uh, are radiolucent and therefore will allow you to cath during compressions. 
then uh, maybe those would be the, the, the situations I wouldn't. In every other circumstance, I would quickly screen for contraindications if you can know them. And I wouldn't stop if you can't get those answers. It would just be like, there are no obvious known contraindications. Then I probably would. And just as you say, it would be tenecteplase. I think it's a lot easier to give during an arrest because the nurses don't have to do something they have been told not to do. You don't usually push alteplase the way you're going to push it here. Tenecteplase is built for this. It's FDA approved in the way you wanted to use it during arrest. But if you only had alteplase, it's okay. Just give 50 milligrams of the bolus, but the nurses are probably going to have to confer. They're not going to believe you that that's safe. So it might be worth having a departmental protocol to do that. But in either case, I would give one of those agents as a bolus as soon as possible during the arrest after, you know, maybe one or two shocks. You mentioned two places where you might exclude those patients. Let's just mention these quickly. If you have ECMO available and I've given tenecteplase or alteplase, does that mean that they're not going to do ECMO on that patient? No, we still could do ECMO. It's okay. Here's the deal. Let's say you had in that patient a, uh, a femoral art line and a femoral vein line in the right place. You know, this is especially prevalent when we have submassive P's. I, I will always put in a groin femoral A line, just a normal A line, and a groin central line in the common femoral vessels. And then let's say they coded and you pushed TNK, it didn't work. So you called the ECMO team. I would absolutely cannulate that patient and it would be no problem because the part that's a problem is the sticking of the vessels for access, you know, getting that initial vessel access. Once that's in, the dilations and stuff, I don't mind doing during TNK. Now, let's say you didn't have that stuff in the groin, we'd still do it. It would just be, bloodier and more annoying because each stick of those vessels trying to get access is a big pain in the butt. Now, cut downs, which we don't do anymore, we don't teach in our ECMO classes anymore, those are a little bit more annoying with thrombolytics on board, but they're still doable and we can, we can make up for the blood product loss. But yes, it, it just makes it more annoying, but it's still definitely doable. And if you have ECMO available in your institution, you're going to have this discussion with your ECMO team of what should we do in these scenarios so that you are getting the patient ready for the best case scenario for that ECMO team. These are questions that you are definitely going to answer beforehand. Well, the, the questions you definitely should answer. It doesn't mean that <laughs> exactly, happen. exactly. But, but what it comes down to is a, a well set up ECPR program should be able to be at the bedside in, I don't know, 10 minutes or less seems reasonable to me. If you're in a place where, yeah, we do ECPR, but it takes a half hour to get there, I'd still say they should get thrombolytics. And what about that situation for the cath lab? If I give them connect to place or alter place, are they still going to cap that patient or are they going to have any problems doing okay, it? Okay. This is where it gets interesting. So if they got ROSC and the EKG was stone clean after that, meaning you had a completely successful lysis, they might wait for them to simmer down to eliminate the chances of bleeding during their procedure. But remember, there was a time we were doing drip and ship where patients mm -hmm. in outside hospitals were actually getting half-dose thrombolytics and then immediately getting a cath on arrival. So this is absolutely doable, totally doable. You haven't eliminated these patients' chances of cath. And if they are you know, in a place that has an aggressive cath shop, I think they should be getting cathed even if you know, their EKG looks okay. Now, you'll get debate from the interventionalists on that question, but the answer that's unambiguous is you absolutely can do a cath after thrombolytics. All right, Keegan, I hope that we have answered your question appropriately. And in Keegan's case, the cardiologist, the interventionalist actually was there during the cardiac arrest in the emergency department and helped to manage the patient and helped Keegan to kind of figure out exactly where they wanted to go. That's always helpful if you can get it done, but not necessary, obviously. So if you have that STEMI patient, they arrest. It is totally reasonable to use TNK or Alteplase during the arrest because you know the pathology that you are working with. Absolutely right. So Jan, there are Scott's thoughts 
This is not a frequent occurrence. That's something that happens all the time, but we do see these cases and we don't want to just be willy-nilly giving thrombolytics to patients with cardiac arrest. But have you done this where you've said, you know, I know this patient had a STEMI because that's why they're here. And now they arrested. Have you done this in pushing either TNK or, or giving Alteplase? You know, I haven't done it, but that's because I work in a STEMI center where we have cath. And I will say that I have pushed really hard on the cardiologist to do something. And I think that's, you know, kind of the equivalent, which is like, I think there's something to be done here. And so I'll really make a push to, to get them to the cath lab. And you know, that often happens. They'll, they'll often, you know, it depends on the aggression of your cardiologist and how awake they are, I suppose. But, you know, you know, it's the kind of thing like during the day when they're in house, they'll be like, yeah, let's do it. You know, two in the morning, they might not be quite so excited about it. But, you know, regardless, that is the healthcare system we work in. But I do, I can, I can see why this is a really good question. All right. Thanks, Keegan, for the question. Hopefully you got the answer you were looking for. And don't forget to keep those letters coming. A 20-minute drive off of I-35. That's more. Oh, yeah. That's Minnesota. And, of course, they have horse, which is part of history of more. Wait, a horse? Oh, yeah. A dollar horse. We got one of those. It's a painted horse. It's a historical. It's like Italian thing? Oh, no, it's Swedish. The town itself is named after the same town in Sweden. Wait, Swedish? Oh, yeah. Well, why didn't you say anything when we were doing the whole Italian thing? Unbelievable. That's Amora. Mega, Like that? All right, it's time for the mega summary. And Swami, we are going to bust through these pieces and drop some learning pearls on everyone. Mega drop. And you're going to kick it off for us. That's cool. That's cool. Yes, our first piece was the critical care mailbag talking about accidental hypothermia. Jan, I know you guys don't get a lot of accidental hypothermia in LA and in Southern California, which, you know, good for you guys. But we get it. We get it a lot. We get it year round. It seems like, which is weird because we do have summer here, but somehow we still get patients coming in in the middle of the summer with hypothermia. Not sure exactly how it happens, but these questions come up all the time. And what Scott and I kind of go through are the different levels of hypothermia and how you should be treating those patients. Everything from the mild hypothermia, where honestly, you don't have to do much. Just keep them in ambient temperatures that are pretty good. Watch that temperature rise. If it's not rising appropriately, think about all of the things that could be happening that's driving that temperature down, like hypoglycemia and alcohol, possibly an infection. And then from there, we go into moderate hypothermia, where there's a little bit more that we have to be doing, things like those forced air blankets, maybe giving warmed IV fluids. And I love the tip that Scott kind of gives us. And I know a lot of people know this, but it's good to hear it again. It's not really a place where you want to just be throwing those bags in the microwave and then giving them. If you have a level one infuser, this is a great place to use it. Use that level one infuser to warm those IV fluids as they're going in. It's a lot faster than throwing bags of fluid in the microwave. And then from there, we go into the more interesting cases, the severe hypothermia and the cardiac arrest. I think the big take home for me, Jan, is if you have ECMO available in your institution, these are the patients where you really should be reaching for that phone, calling your ECMO team and saying, I've got this patient with severe hypothermia. I'm worried that they're going to have a cardiac arrest. Can you come in and cannulate the patient? And it's a big win because ECMO can warm these patients super fast and get them back from either the brink of death or full-on death. So I think this is an important place to be calling for ECMO where there's a big win to be had. Yeah, I thought the part about patients who are cold and dead, cardiac arrest part, was particularly interesting, being that I had seen a case not too long, I mean, like, like, like two weeks ago, 
of a patient who came in with a, a core temp of like 21 degrees Celsius was found right outside the hospital. So obviously cold and, 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 and dead, didn't have any pulses. And there were a lot of questions that the residents had about how do you know when they're actually dead and just cold? And they're actually, you know, hypothermic and down because of the hypothermia. How do you differentiate? And that point about hyperkalemia and getting that K up front is really an important decision point. And in this case that I'm describing, the K was 5.5. So they kind of proceeded with some resuscitation efforts. So I really liked that point as well. Rural medicine talks. All right, let's get into our next piece, which is the rural medicine piece, everybody's favorite of the month. Oh, we always love rural medicine. This one is about a case of a stone, you say, as Vanessa describes it. This was a (laughs) gentleman with abdominal pain, and he had a history of gallstones. And really, as he came in, the pain sounded a lot like gallstone pain. He had epigastric pain, right upper quadrant pain. He had some nausea. And so she was, you know, kind of walking down that path of, you know, he had had his surgery delayed because of COVID. Really, he just needed to get there. And, you know, he turns out to have a bit of a white count, but his lipase LFTs all look pretty normal. And as she's watching him and thinking, ah, it's biliary colic, I'm just going to see if it resolves, the guy just kind of keeps getting worse. And so the take-home point about this piece is, is about anchoring bias and early closure and sort of getting that initial history about, this sounds just like gallstone pain and the guy has gallstones, and sort of closing your, your mind off to the other possibilities. But really, you know, the key is to be open to go back and reassess. And as the exam changes, and in this case, the guy kept getting worse and worse and worse, and ends up having a small bowel obstruction with a perforation, not a gallstone at all, you know, you have to go back and think about it again and to not just sort of settle for that initial diagnosis that you thought it was. That anchoring bias can be so strong, and we all know it. And this was a great case of that. And Jen, just to remind everybody, what was the cause of that small bowel obstruction and perforation? (laughs) You're right. I kind of skipped over the best (laughs) part. The perforation and the small bowel obstruction was from a peach pit that the guy had swallowed, accidentally swallowed. And once the diagnosis was made and the guy goes to the OR, then he remembered, oh yeah, I swallowed this peach pit. And I was like sort of intermittently getting this abdominal pain, which was probably intermittently, you know, causing obstruction. <laughs> and it, that's what caused the perforation. It's crazy. You know, I love peaches jam, but every time I see someone kind of sucking on that pit, this is what I think about. You're going <laughs> to swallow it. It's going to happen. I, it's, you know what? Just eat the peach. Throw the pit away. It I doesn't need to go in if, your mouth. If you swallow the pit, doesn't a peach tree grow in your stomach? That was uh, That's what I was taught. Like that's what was next for this patient. Yeah, exactly. If, if we had waited longer, that's what would have happened. <laughs> At least that's what my mom told me would yes. happen. So I believe it. Rit long. Our next thing was one of these pathologies that I'm going to have to be honest, Jen, I never heard of. Britt emailed me and said, I've got this patient that I saw the other day with a Morel-Lavallee lesion. Can we do this for MRAP? And I said, Yeah as I'm quickly Googling Morel-Lavallee lesion to know what it is. And I'm going to guess that some of our listeners didn't know what this was either, but actually it's an interesting diagnosis. It's one that we should know about because it has some important complications associated with it. And that's what Britt and Justin Carlson go through is the presentation here. It's, it's usually associated with a trauma. And what the patient has is a closed degloving injury that happens over the hip. So this frequently happens in patients who have fractures of the pelvis, the acetabulum, and proximal femur in a high-velocity trauma. So that's kind of your trigger to think about this disorder. And again, it's important to know about it because it can lead to some complications down the line if it's missed, one of the big ones being infection in the area. So Justin and Britt go through the evaluation, noting that x-ray doesn't really give you the diagnosis. You're really going to want a CT scan or an MRI. And then the management is not really well understood either, but it's important to get orthopedic surgery involved early to figure out what they want to do to help to fix this issue. 
So I, I don't know, Jan, have you ever heard of this? you ever seen one of these lesions? Yes, I have heard of it and I have seen it. And that's probably because I work in a trauma center. So I'm exposed to a lot of trauma cases. And often this isn't, you know, initially uh, visible. This is the kind of thing that develops a little bit over time, but it's really important to keep on your differential when that patient who had one of these types of trauma, you know, the nurse comes to you and says, hey, you know, their leg looks a little bit more swollen or, you know, they're complaining of more pain in this extremity and you had films and they were negative. You didn't see a fracture, but like you got to go back and examine it. Now you would think, of course, of compartment syndrome, but this one is also on the list. And it's one of the good reasons to observe these types of patients for a while. They had high energy trauma, and this is one of the things that they can develop if time is given. All right. Well, I love it. I love learning something new. I love learning one of these things. We have to come up with a different name because this one's impossible to pronounce, and I'm just not going to be able to do it anymore. Oh, come on. You got to embrace the French. And just think of, <laughs> I think of morel mushrooms. That's what always, because mm. morel is the first word. So I don't know. Doesn't, there's, no real, there's no real link there. It's just a Shameless plug for morel mushrooms. One of the world's most coveted edible mushrooms. They are sought after by gourmet chefs worldwide. Retrobalbar hematoma. All right, Jen, let's continue the trauma theme. We've got a little bit of a two-parter on retrobalbar hematoma. This is a great piece with Jesse Werner and Deirdre St. Peter, who is one of our ophthalmologic experts that we frequently talk to. And this is actually part three of an ophthalmologic trauma series that Jesse and Deirdre have done together. And this one focuses on retrobalbar hematoma. Retrobulbar hematoma is a compartment syndrome of the orbit, which remember the orbit is a closed space. So if you get hemorrhage or hematoma within that orbit, it will lead to pressure. And the, the problem there is that you can get ischemia of your optic nerve leading to visual loss. This is why it's such a big deal. And you know how long you have? You only have 90 minutes where that ischemia could cause permanent vision loss. So they review the pathophysiology, the diagnosis. Clinically, you often see proptosis. It's usually unilateral, but it could be bilateral in you know, unfortunate circumstances. The eyelid, if you were to push on it, push on the globe a little bit, should feel sort of rock hard because of that compartment syndrome. The eyelid is usually pretty difficult to open, and they have diffuse subconjunctival hemorrhage there, and they may or may not be able to tell you about any vision loss. But this is really a clinical diagnosis. You can clinch it by getting an intraocular pressure, which will be elevated usually over 40 millimeters of mercury. You know, although many people will get a CT scan, you don't want to delay the treatment of this condition because of that 90 minutes that you have. So while you might be waiting for a CT scan, if you make this diagnosis, you should proceed with treatment. And if you do get that reading on your tonopen, what you want to do is a lateral canthotomy, cantholysis. And so we do have an MRAP HD video to kind of walk you through this. And they audibly walk us through the procedure really well with lots of great pearls. So it's a great opportunity to review a procedure that we don't get to do very often in most of our practices. This is really one of those high acuity, low opportunity interventions that you really have to know how to do that lateral canthotomy, especially because we know how scarce it is to have an ophthalmology consultant available to you. 90 minutes is a short period of time. So even if you identify this really rapidly, and you don't have an ophthalmologist, and you're thinking you're going to ship them somewhere else for that ophthalmologist, it might be too long for that patient to wait. They're going to lose vision or have a marked reduction in vision. It really does fall on the shoulders of the emergency clinician to be able to do that lateral canthotomy. It's not a hard procedure, Jan, but I think we just don't like doing things around the eye. I think that's why it gives us a little bit of the heebie-jeebies. But if you review the video, if you think about this in your head a couple of times, it's really not a hard procedure to do, and we should be very comfortable cutting when we need to. Make it wreck. Next up was pharmacology rounds with Sean Nort and Megan Reck, and they're talking about Andexanet Alpha and PCC. And this is really all about factor 10A inhibitors, which are DOACs, 
and patients who are on them who have critical bleeding that needs to be reversed. We really have two options available to us. We have four-factor PCC or we have indexinet alpha. And they walk us through these two drugs, these two options, and how they're a little bit different. Remember that DOACs inhibit factor 10A. And one of the keys to knowing if your patient's on a DOAC is if you have XA in the name, like apixaban or rivaroxaban, that XA, that's an XA, a 10A inhibitor. So are these drugs, these factor 10A inhibitors, these DOACs that everybody is on, are they safe? They are safer compared to the traditional one of warfarin. That's true. But really, bleeding does happen. So we have to know what our options are. And it's really best if your hospital has a protocol, which they point out. And Dexanet Alpha is a decoy protein. It binds up the drug, it removes it from circulation, but it also has a procoagulant effect. So it does have some risk benefit to it. PCC has been out for a while. It actually has about the same efficacy. It is less expensive than Endexanet Alpha, and the literature is really weak for both of them, but it's even more weak for PCC than it is for Endexanet Alpha. Both of these drugs, as mentioned, carry a thromboembolic risk. These both are in the thousands of dollars for doses, but really, you know, if you have to give them and it's clinically sort of evident to you that you need to do it, you got to know what your hospital would prefer you to give. We've reviewed a number of the articles about indexinate alpha on EMA. I think we've talked about a couple of them on MRAP as well. The data is not very good. It's, it's pretty weak evidence that these should be used, but we know that our hospitals have them. We have protocols to give them. And Jim, what I find is one of the really important things to find out is when did the patient last take that 10A inhibitor? Because if they tell you, well, I haven't taken it in three days, then there's no reason to give them indexinate alpha. It's just a huge waste of money. So that's a critical question to ask the patient, especially since we can't get a level or really know how this is affecting the patient's coagulation status. We just don't have that availability right now. Although those assays are being developed, we really have to find out when's the last time they took it. I recently had a patient who had an intracranial hemorrhage who was on rivaroxaban and came in and we were talking about reversing with indexinate alpha. And the family said, well, you know, I went to their house and I, I took their pill container, which I set out every week. And it's completely full. They haven't taken any of their meds for four days. I'm like, well, then there's no reason for us to be giving this very expensive medication for no benefit. So really want to get that information. This is a really good review of a place where maybe our knowledge level isn't as good as it should be. And fortunately, Sean and Megan do a really good job of going through all of these different areas that we have to really be able to master. Dr. Amol Matu. Our next segment was the cardiology corner with Amol talking about the heart failure guidelines for management that have recently been produced by ASEP. I like these ASEP clinical policies, Jan, because they kind of outline questions that are questions in every clinician's mind. They try to take the best evidence and boil it down and give recommendations. I particularly like this one because it's the first one Amol was involved in. We all know how good Amol is, how trustworthy he is, which makes me really trust these guidelines and know that they've done the work to give us good information to take to clinical practice. And so they go through four different questions. Number one, is POCUS sufficient to direct clinical management? They give a level B recommendation for using point-of-care ultrasound in conjunction with your medical history and physical examination to make the diagnosis of heart failure. Amal and I kind of talk about the fact that we both think that this really is a level A thing that we should be doing. It's just we don't have the evidence to necessarily back it up, but it is clearly something that we should be very comfortable doing looking at those lungs, looking for B lines, finding out if the patient's overloaded and then treating them appropriately. Question number two looks at whether early administration of diuretics is safe and effective. This really springs out of an article that was in the Journal of American College of Cardiology about five years ago. Amal and I discussed this when it came out and what it really kind of tried to push us to do 
was to give loop diuretics as early as possible. But ASAP looks at all the evidence and says, mm, we're not so sure. They give it a level C recommendation and say, you know, you really have to assess the patient and know, are they truly fluid overloaded? Since we do actually have a lot of patients who come in with pulmonary edema who aren't total body fluid overloaded. So you got to make that assessment, decide whether you need diuretics or not. Question number three was about vasodilator therapy. And we talk about how we should be giving high dose nitroglycerin in that subgroup of patients with acute pulmonary edema, massively elevated blood pressures. And that's going to really fix the patient in conjunction with your non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. And then finally, they get into the idea of which patients with acute heart failure presentations can safely be discharged home. And there's no good answer here, Jan. They give a level B and a level C recommendation, but ultimately we all kind of agree that this is such a case-by-case -case basis, knowing how good does the patient look, how comfortable are they, how close is their follow-up, do they have the ability to return to the hospital, they get sicker. It's a very difficult thing to really assess and figure out, and the clinical decision instruments aren't quite there yet. Yeah, this was a great review of an important paper to know about, and of course it's not totally comprehensive. It doesn't cover everything. There's other things we know work in heart failure like BiPAP. And, you know, there's lots to know about heart failure, but it's important to know what these, you know, official guidelines sort of tell us. And I have to say, I love treating heart failure with nitroglycerin. It's one of my favorite things to do. It's like magic, isn't it? Absolutely is. You give it and then all of a sudden the patient looks great. My old EMS system that I used to work in, they would give these patients one or two milligrams of nitro in the field. They put them on CPAP and then they roll in the door. And I'm like, this patient looks great. You can take them home now. Like, right. What do you want me to do? Oh, you want me to admit them to the hospital? Okay, fine. But there's nothing else left for me to do because they were so aggressive in the field. Dr. Eli Margolini. All right, our next segment was the neurocritical care mailbag. A little bit of an addition to the lineup, talking to Evie Marcolini about some of these listener questions that have come in. So we go through two listener questions. The first was about a patient with subarachnoid hemorrhage who had a notably prolonged QTC, had elevated blood pressure, and the listener wants to know, can I use the same agents I typically do to lower that blood pressure? And Evie says, yep, absolutely. We know that subarachnoid hemorrhage in and of itself can cause prolonged QTC, but your drugs like clavidipine and labetalol and nicardipine are all going to be fine for lowering that blood pressure. Clavidipine probably should be our go-to, except that many of us don't work in a place that has clavidipine. So nicardipine and labetalol are fine for backups. Question number two was about a patient who presented with a lower and upper facial droop. Sure looked like a Bell palsy, but the patient also complained of some numbness in their fingers that happened about 10 days ago. And so the clinician went ahead and pursued an MRI, which showed that the patient actually had an acute ischemic stroke. And so the question is, can you have a Bell palsy and also have a stroke? And what Evie points out is you really have to do that deep dive into the history. If they just have a facial nerve palsy, that probably is Bell palsy. But if there's anything else in the history that's neurologic, you have to start thinking about stroke and going down that pathway. Kudos to the listener for noting that little deficit or that little neurologic complaint and then pursuing the diagnosis as they did in this particular case. Yeah, this one was a tricky one because I thought about myself and if I saw this in a, you know, a pretty rapid triage, I could see this person being seated in a chair and they're telling you about this finger numbness and, you know, it'd be really easy to blow it off. So I agree also kudos to the listener for taking that neurologic complaint seriously and reminding us all to be very detailed and to pay attention to what patients tell us. D Triple C Tactical Combat Casualty Care Course. Jen, our next segment was with Dan McCollum and Ryan Knight talking about the Chi Triple C guidelines. That's right. And, you know, Ryan Knight is our military tactical medicine expert, and he actually is on the committee that helps develop the TCCC 
guidelines, the tactical combat casualty care. And this segment was really spurned by a listener question as well, who wrote in about some of the guidelines in TCCC, should we be translating those to, you know, civilian care? And some of them seem a little bit kind of crazy if you think about applying them to civilian care. And so they talk about how these guidelines really aren't designed for clinical care. They're designed for military medicine. And they really talk about how guidelines are formulated and where some of these recommendations come from. There's three actual recommendations they walk us through. One is their recommendations on TXA and about the dosing of TXA and the recommendation that there be a bolus dose that's permissible in giving TXA. And that's just something we don't usually do in civilian care. But the reason that they made that recommendation is because of the practicality that if you're out in the field in a combat situation, you can't, you know, give a bolus and hang a drip. And I mean, it's just not practical. And they found that their compliance with that dosing was very low. So they changed to a bolus dosing. And Ryan gets into a little bit of the history of how doses are chosen for TXA. The second part is about tourniquet use and how the recommendations in TCCC are very broad for tourniquet use. And again, they may not translate perfectly to civilian medicine, but really when it comes to life-threatening bleeding, the answer is the same for both, which is that tourniquets can be life-saving for sure. And then third is about prophylactic antibiotics. And this is an interesting one, and it's one that the TCC is currently revisiting. But they recommend oral and or IV antibiotics for all open wounds in the field. And that seemed to be a little bit questionable to the listener. The truth is that the research that they did after the Iraq conflicts in the military, that soldiers were dying from sepsis and infection as the fourth leading cause of death after having wounds. And their wounds there are very dirty and contaminated, and they have delays to getting those things cleaned and debrided. And so they're very aggressive in getting antibiotics into these soldiers in the pre-hospital setting. That, again, may not translate to our short transport times in urban settings, et cetera. So this is a different set of diet guidelines. It's interesting to delve into why the recommendations are the way they are. And I appreciated Ryan's expertise. I think it's important that we have this information and this guidance from the military, but we really do have to look at how does this affect us in the civilian setting? How do we use that information the best for our patients? And I like going through all of this and, and knowing where they come up with the ideas that they come up with. Our final piece, Jan, was from Justin Morgenstern, one that I mentioned up front. He called this piece The Gamble. And what it really gets into is having end-of-life discussion with patients when we see them in the emergency department. And Jan, I'll be honest with you, this isn't something that I feel I was well-trained in. I think for a long time, I didn't really feel like it was part of what I should be doing for patients in the emergency department. Instead, I should just bump it off to palliative care. I can just call a consult when they're admitted to the hospital that can be dealt with. But over time, I think we have really had more and more of our folks in emergency medicine starting to train in palliative care and say, you know, there is a role for us to do this in the emergency department. It doesn't mean that you have to sit down and have a 90-minute conversation with every patient. But starting that conversation can really help the inpatient service. It can really help the palliative care team. And more importantly, Jan, it really helps the patient to think about what is it that they want. So I'm glad that Justin put this piece together. It is a bit of an atypical one for Justin. Usually it is let me take this clinical question and dive into all of the literature that's been published in the last 50 years and tell you what to do. This one is more of a, of a think piece. And I really liked it. And Jan, I know this is kind of right up your alley. So I'm guessing that this is an itch that you wanted scratched for the listeners as well. <laughs> yeah, I loved it. I thought it was great. You know, one thing about the COVID pandemic is that many more emergency physicians started to get comfortable having these conversations because it was really important, you know, during the dark days of COVID. And I just hope that, you know, those people who did change their practice and start having those conversations, don't change back, you know, to keep doing it, to recognize that having those conversations 
And sometimes you won't get to an answer, but sometimes you do. And giving the patients and their family a chance to talk about what their wishes are can be so critical in some cases if the patient deteriorates. So, you know, it's just something we should be doing. I agree. It's un- sometimes it can be uncomfortable, but the more you do it, the less uncomfortable it gets for you, at least. And fortunately, I think a lot of us have those resources in our hospital. We have palliative care, which doesn't mean to bump it off, but more that you can ask them. How do you recommend that we start to approach this in the emergency department? And I think that can really be helpful to empower us and give us the tools to actually start that conversation. And we have some great pieces in past MRAP episodes that we'll link to in the show notes that you can always go back and listen to that have teaching points as well. Absolutely. And Jen, that is our April 2023 MRAP. We touched on trauma. We touched on cardiology. We touched on end-of-life care. So many different things. Kind of exactly what you expect when you open up your MRAP package at the beginning of the month. It was a great month. I love the potpourri, the hodgepodge. It's why I love our specialty. And so I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Swami, for being here with me. And I can't wait to be back with you again next month. And for everybody out there in MRAP land, keep doing what you do, because what you do matters. Next time on MRAP. They sort of read like a what not to do list without the what to do list. The vast majority of them are not going to be anything severe. It might be just a viral reaction. So the cost of doing CTA in all isolated dizzy patients is really high. Anyone who practices EBM just had their hackles raised by the discussion that actually occurred on that mailbag. And so I went to my IRB chair, who happens to be a good friend of mine, and he just laughed in my face. And he was like, there's no way I'm going to let you do this. 